Ladies and gentlemen, today I'm joined in the studio by Dr. Robert Boncardo. Um, Robert is the author of a really astonishing uh, doctoral thesis. It's, it's kind of a real genre-busting thesis. The thesis is called um, Appropriations of Malame um, in the works of Sartre, Telkel, Bantu and Roncia. It's, it's, I think, a revolutionary as well as exemplary thesis that really um, uh, should change everyone's mind about what a banal and kind of insipid genre PhD theses tend to be. Um, welcome to the podcast, Robert. Thank you very much, Brian. Um, uh, now, Robert, um, to begin, as I do traditionally, I want to ask you, how did philosophy ruin your life? Well, look, I didn't start in philosophy, and um, there are moments where I feel that I absolutely should not call myself a philosopher in any way, um, that I don't yet have the right to claim that moniker at all, uh, because, I suppose, um, I started in literature. And uh, my passage to philosophy was made um, across the very treacherous waters of literary theory. <laughs> um, and so I encountered uh, people like... Uh, European tradition, Derrida, uh, Foucault, uh, Kristeva, uh, via literary theory and applying their ideas to literary texts. Yes. And um, this was my initial um, encounter with them. And while I remained very much focused on literature, in particular on poetry, um, almost exclusively on poetry, I haven't read a novel for a long time. Um, <laughs> Indeed. Um, Across time, I've become more and more interested in philosophy for its own sake, but also I think I've turned towards um, uh, political philosophy more and more, and um, I hope we get to talk a little bit about that uh, today. Um, the thesis itself began to be more and more uh, political um, as it went along and moved away, in a sense, both from poetry and from philosophy. Mm. Uh, so I feel, I feel stretched between three different domains... Um, none of them I am competent in at all um, so I feel uh, uh, that I can somewhat claim the moniker of a literary person but certainly not a philosopher and um, in terms of politics I'm still uh, still a little bit on, on my ill place if you will I think you are I think you are too modest in a, in a sense uh, in, in, the, in the sense that I think any philosopher would be um, jealous of the rigor with which you approach the the major philosophers in your in your thesis but in addition um, you remind me that I actually uh, misstated the title of your thesis it is of course a political appropriation That's of, right. of uh, Malame in the in the works of the various philosophers that we mentioned and I I wonder when you say political philosophy though whether I, I mean my guess is that you would you are definitely talking not so much of political philosophy, but of philosophy and politics. In I know it's a pedantic distinction, but in the in the sense of like what Badiou would call la politique, as yes. opposed to as opposed to le politique. Le politique. Uh, certainly, that is that's true, and I, I think that the French tradition um, has tied theory and practice so closely together that there is not um, a domain of. Uh, of, let's say, like autonomous political thought in the, in the way that we would think in the exactly. analytic tradition, Precisely. the tradition yep. of liberalism. Yes. It's uh, uh, public intellectuals. Yes, indeed. Badiou, Sartre, all the way back to Voltaire. Indeed, also, indeed, yes. Um, uh, Comte, hmm? who are 
public figures who are reflecting at a very high level the philosophical abstraction, but who are also engaged in the cut and thrust of everyday polemic and mm. kind of short-term strategies, yes. um, engaging with the state, engaging with other social forces in a way which is uh, much more concrete, much more situated, and certainly uh, is very different for that reason to the kind of philosophical reflections on politics that we find in Rawls, for instance, which in, in no way look like anything that Badiou writes about politics or Sartre writes about politics, let alone let alone um, uh, Rousseau. Maybe there's something Rousseauian in, in the kind of abstraction of what he does, but the French tradition and the European tradition has knotted theory and practice together so much that I suppose I have to agree with you, it's not really political philosophy, it's just philosophy, philosophers engaging in the cut and thrust of political indeed, action. Indeed, and this is this is really what your remarkable thesis is about. It is about this kind of um, network, this triangle of politics, philosophy, and and art, or, or specifically yeah. poetry, or kind of um, philosophy and and uh, as Badiou would say, two of its conditions. Right. Um, now, before I, I I have a number of uh, specific things I want to ask you about the arguments you put forward in the thesis in the thesis, um, which uh, I um, I think is going to become a book. Yes, is is when book, yeah, we, yes. Fingers and toes are crossed. But yes, <laughs> I mean, yeah, I I cannot um, imagine a publisher passing on on this one. Frankly, like I I think Palgrave or whoever has the manuscript would be idiots not to not to publish it. But before I talk about what I am going to call your book, um, also has a nice sort of Malarmean ring to it. Mm. But before I before I talk about your book, um, perhaps perhaps if you just uh, told our audience a little bit about about why Malame, this this figure who I think for a number of especially um, Anglophone readers of of French theory, as as so many of us are, who is this endlessly in, invoked name. Um, one of one of the things that I've learned from you in particular is just how omnipresent Malame is in in Badiou's work, for example. Like like he is. Um, He's explicitly evoked again and again and again, but even even when he's not being explicitly evoked, he's this subterranean uh, presence in all of Badi's work. But I think he's a figure because he's so famously difficult to translate that intrigues and intimidates and kind of mystifies a lot yeah. of um, uh, of Anglophone readers. So, so tell us a little bit about Malamé, about Stéphane Malamé. Sure. Well, I have to admit that um, a few years ago I was definitely in the position of a, an Anglophone reader of this French uh, philosophy, intrigued, bemused mm. by this obscure figure of Malamé who was always invoked in such uh, reverential terms for the most part and whose uh, uh, snippets from his writings you find throughout all the great thinkers in the French 20th century tradition. Um, going all the way back to Valerie, of course, mm. who, is a, who is a figure we might talk a little bit about later mm. on. Certainly. And um, so my uh, engagement with Malamé, uh, in fact, began from that position. And he wasn't the first French poet that I, that I got into in, in any way. The first French poet that I really felt um, uh, passionate about was, in fact, Baudelaire. Mm-hmm. And I was fortunate enough to do um, uh, some study in France as an undergraduate, and I did this amazing course which spent a whole semester um, just reading through Les Fleurs du Mal mm. by Baudelaire, mm. um, The Flowers of Evil. And uh, that captured me. Um, I was captured in particular by the way that the French uh, taught poetry. They taught it um, in this kind of um, a way which made you appre- appreciate the artisanal side of things. So it wasn't continually making reference to um, you know, theories outside poetics as such, political, psychoanalytic 
uh, theories. It was about how to make a poem, how does a poem work, um, what is the history of poetry, what is meter, what is rhyme, those things. Yes, and I was yes. really passionate about that and I was passionate about um, Baudelaire in particular for a very long time. And when it came to the thesis, um, uh, theses always have strange contingent genesis Indeed, um, in, no in doubt. counters in the Deleuzean sense. The absolutely, yes, absolutely. Yes. Um, and, and I suppose I, I began from the position of, it's something I'm going to sound a little bit cynical here, but it was a position of how can I do for the next three and also years of my life the most interesting reading possible? Hmm. And I thought, okay, all of these interesting people that I like, Sartre, Rancière, Badiou, Telkel, they all refer to Malamé. Maybe I can use Malamé as my red thread in order to sustain my reading for the next uh, three and a half years. So it was a little bit of a cynical uh, uh, ploy at the beginning, but um, I think that's the opposite of cynicism. By the oh. way, it's like it's it's like it's it's cynical only if your primary <laughs> instrumental motivation is to read as much philosophy as possible. But, sure, sure. Well, I um, um, I suppose, but things always take on a life of their own. They do, and um, the the effect outstrips its cause to such a degree that you find yourself um, um, getting into a world that you never thought even existed before, that you couldn't even desire before it because you didn't know it actually existed. Yes, yes, indeed. And this is why cynicism is totally false. Like, uh, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, and so um, the first Malamé poem that I uh, encountered, um, and I might read a little bit of it later on because it, it, it's a powerful um, expression of a, a few ideas that Ronciere uh, develops um, it's called La de la Mer Hopo, or Weary of Bitter Sleep. And I heard it for the first time in the actual the Baudelaire course um, that I did in France. And it was, um, it's a kind of Baudelairean Malamé. Um, and it, I remember it. And I remember the image that I had in my head of what um, this poem was in a kind of abstract way was, was of a, a crystal, like a crystal, hmm. some kind of transparent but also extremely hard substance yes um and i just carried this image in my mind um for a number of years until it came time to decide what to do in my thesis and and um Malame was there and a whole series of events came together such that i began to read him you know from top to bottom read the prose read the poetry uh read the secondary scholarship which is um for the most part excellent although there are some duds <laughs> we might even get a chance to talk about some of the duds indeed, today. Indeed. Um, and um, I suppose even today like he is somebody that um, I like to read all the time he's somebody who fascinates me more and more he's not somebody that I feel like okay that's done and dusted I can leave it behind uh-huh. it's somebody that I'm saying to myself I'm going to have to work on for the next 10-20 years that's so interesting and unusual for, for people for, uh, who have just done theses look, PhD theses, theses. Uh, yeah. I can totally understand um, people being so traumatised by their experience as a PhD student I can definitely understand that wanting to leave behind everything that they did um, in, their, in their PhD theses and move on to some, something else such that it traumatised them so much I can understand that um but in terms of Malamé, there's a lot more to be done, a lot more to be discovered. And I'm going to sound a little bit parochial here, but there is um, a long tradition of Australian Malamé scholarship. Um, indeed. As, um, Christopher indeed, Brennan. Indeed, Christopher um, Brennan, who yeah. is possibly, this is a, a big claim, but possibly the first Australian poet. Let me say <laughs> The first Australian poet. And uh, he... Um, so he was an academic at Sydney University in the early part of the 20th century, yes. an alcoholic, a womanizer, yes. adulterist, etc. But also an exquisite poet, exquisite poet who um, uh, exchanged letters with Malamé yes. himself. 
And this is the beginning of a very important uh, lineage in um, Australian poetry, so the actual practice of poetry yes, itself, indeed. but also uh, in terms of um, scholarship. So there are some big names, most importantly, and we'll talk about him later on when we come to Badu, Gardner Davies, mm. who is the um, preeminent Australian Malame scholar, now dead, uh, died in the early 90s, I think. Uh, but who has exerted a huge impact upon worldwide Malame studies, who is kind of one of those unsurpassable points of reference for anybody that's interested in Malame. Um, and um, obviously for Badiou him, himself, uh, Badiou thinks of Gardner Davies as the Malame scholar, such that like, there's nobody else that needs to be read besides Gardner Davies. I, I recall that you, um, you, the statement that you just made, like you, you got this as first-hand testimony from Alain Badiou himself when Definitely, he was here. Yeah, yeah. I, wanted to, I wanted to ask Badiou in particular like, what his relationship with Gardner Davies was, mm. and um, it was a personal relationship. They exchanged letters, Badiou and Gardner Davies, uh, they met up in Paris quite often, they sort of discussed or rather bitched about other possible <laughs> other Malame scholars who remain unnamed. Inferior Malame scholars. <laughs> um, and um, so he, he is particularly important to Badiou and the details of his reading, Gardner Davies' reading of a, of, of a poem like Anku today, mm. um, is very, uh, very specific. It's not um, shared by all Malame scholars, but it's certainly shared by Badiou. And Badiou has a very particular reading of Ancou today, which involves it being a conceptual drama. That's right. And conceptual drama that is staging poetically, if you will, the, um, let's say, the pure concept of an event. Yes, yes. You, this is um, the third chapter of your or thesis, like, right. like goes into some detail about this, indeed. Yes. Indeed. And um, what we might be able to say then is that there is an Australian genesis to the concept of the event in <laughs> Gardner Davies' reading of Ancou Today yeah. is the conceptual framework that Badiou uses in order to extract, if you will, from the Coup Today a concept of the event, which forms the 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 sort of the the, the, the key concept that he has in his mature philosophy. Um, that is an extra. You heard it first on Philosophy Could Ruin Your Life. That is an extraordinary um, revelation of this this antipodean uh, genealogy of of the concept of the event in in, in Badiou. Um, okay, so. Uh, perhaps, yeah, perhaps you could say a little bit more about uh, Malame as a poet, about sure. his, his, his life and times, um, 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 the nature of his poetry. Just, just if you were speaking to a, an audience who had heard the name and knew nothing of him, they might have right. heard words like symbolist, they might know that his, they might know his, his sort of um, Second Empire, um, Third Republic kind of um, um, epoch in which he's writing uh they might um know that he's he's famously um uh that in the mind of some uh thinkers and, and obviously there are exceptions to this that that he is he is incredibly um obscure and and difficult um yeah what would you what would you say about Malame if you had to if you had to introduce him from your idiosyncratic from your personal perspective sure well let's be just be Empiricist for a moment. He was born in 1842. He died yes. in 1898. So right. kind of on the cusp of the 20th century. Indeed. Many thinkers um, have have seen him as a person who 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 died um, before all of his radical ideas came to fruition precisely in the 20th century. Yes. Through modernism, through the avant-garde, into the postmodern, post-structuralist, um, Badiouian uh, position. So Indeed. a person who died on the threshold of the era that he himself had, in a sense, um, been the prophet of. So he's, a, he's an extraordinarily important figure in the history of modern art. 
that's the first thing to say. But he um, began life, um, I suppose, as a, a loyal disciple of Baudelaire. Yes. So Baudelaire is the great um, uh, melancholy poet of the modern age. Yes. The poet who follows after the grand Victor Hugo, who in the French tradition represents uh, the Enlightenment, represents progress, represents a kind of secular theodicy. We're all moving towards um, a, a, a better a better world. Yes. He certainly encapsulates um, Hugo. And he certainly encapsulates that 19th century spirit of progress. And uh, there's a, a very famous passage um, section in um, Les Miserables mm. where Jean Valjean is carrying Marius out of the sewers in Paris. He's, he's, yes, yes. He's rescued him from one of the barricades of the 1830 revolution, failed revolution, and he's carrying him through the sewers of Paris and up into the sunlight. And that trajectory is the trajectory that Hugo's poetry occurs in. Yes, he associates it with, with like often with the, the people of Paris and the, and the French people more generally. That they, will, they will undertake this journey into the, into the sunlight through their suffering, through all the sufferings of the post-revolutionary epoch. And, and, into and the so promised land. Yes, indeed, indeed. Baudelaire comes after 1848. Yes. Which is to say after a failed revolution. Yes. A failed revolution that um, leads to the Second Empire. So we have um, Napoleon III who pretty much has, uh, takes, takes power and reinstitutes a kind of French empire. Yes. Right? The, the Second Empire um, uh, indeed exiles Hugo himself, who became a staunch uh, opponent of the Second Empire, yes. Napoleon III. And Baudelaire is somebody who uh, believes in the dream, if you will, of poetry as this spiritual guide for humanity, a secular spiritual guide for humanity, who in the sort of the vein of the German Romantics is meant to take up where religion left off, a kind of a new um, uh, communal bond that will be forged, not through religion, but through some other form of art. Okay. He believes in that dream. He believes it so passionately, but he sees the failure of that dream yes. in 1848. Yes. Um, people should know that in 1848 there was, for a very um, short time, a Republican government uh, led by a poet, Lamartine. Lamartine. And the failure of that is in a sense the, the combined failure of, 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 of political revolution but also of the project of poetry in this sort of Hugolian vein. Sort of grand romantic tradition exactly. of, of, of we will have a... I, I don't know, we will, we will sort of, through poetry, we will, we will have an aesthetic education that will uh, combine to re bind that which the kind of traumas of modernity has, have, has split apart, that classic romantic, like we will have a new, a new liturgy and a, a kind of, a, it's also a, a, it's very much tied to the, a romantic interpretation of Christianity, Absolutely. like history yeah. um, as theodicy, as you yes. rightly said. And, and, and you were saying rightly that, that for, for Baudelaire and, and for Mallarmé, who is, is even in a later generation, these are people who come after the defeat of that. Yes. Of that. In, in fact, that that perhaps gives me a, a good um, entree into the into the thesis, right? right. Because um, so the thesis, uh, political appropriations of Malamé. I mean, one of the early um, figures you mention is um, uh, this guy. On his first name temporarily a Faye, who writes a book uh, called uh, Comrade Malamé would be the would it's, be the... it's a newspaper article ah it's really yeah. a newspaper article a newspaper okay article. Um, and the figure of Comrade Malamé is is in a sense uh, like is a is a central figure in your thesis because it's Comrade Malamé the idea of this 
figure who was um, skeptical about the the Paris Commune in in 1871, who. Uh, distant from the the radical politics of the time but who in subsequent um generations of of french of french theorists mm. is taken up as this this um obligatory passage point for any for any potential revolutionary like this is right. the, the, a question about why this is the case why does um do generations of of french political theorists and political radicals turn to this um uh arguably pessimistic bourgeois poet right sure. this is this is the central question of the thesis and i thought i'd start by by asking you about your chapter on sartre where um you do this you do this extraordinary analysis of sartre's ambivalence in regards to um in regards to malame where on the one hand uh, you mention malame for sartre becomes kind of the opposite of what the Sartre of the post-war period from 1947, the time he's writing, like, what is literature, that um, Sartre's coming up with this concept of engaged literature. And Mallarmé represents the ultimate in a sort of hermetic, um, elitist, despairing um, uh, con conception of, of the world that comes through in the, in the poetry, um, uh, a way of mourning the, or, or melancholic reaction to the death of, to the death of God, um, an abstracted relationship from, from sense and meaning that Sartre seems to connect to the possibility for any, any real action right. in, 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 in the world. Um, and yet, Underneath this, so so you you point out and this just how harsh Sartre is to Mallarmé in this regard that he's he's the enemy he's exactly um, uh, what's wrong with kind of bourgeois art that is not engaged and yet right and yet you also point to to something else that Sartre discovers in in Mallarmé. Can you tell us a Indeed. bit about both of those elements? So, yeah. so Sartre's critique and his. Um, and his discovery or, or his, his deep ambivalence around this, this great book. Well, to come back to the, the post-1848 yes, situation, indeed. because I think this is, this is crucial. These are the kind of um, uh, points of reference that all French thinkers have. You know, 1848, um, 1871, These are the points of reference that they use to orient themselves in their own present. Yeah. Okay, like we have the commune. Okay, that was a revolutionary situation. How did people act... With respect to it. Now, with respect to the post-war situation, I'd just like to say a few things about the context. Of course, that, that of makes, course. makes um, Sartre's intervention make sense and not seem like a totally overblown, hypercritical um, uh, reaction. No, to, like a mere right. idiosyncrasy, right? Exactly. Like this, is, this is after 1945, rise yes. of the Communist Party, all of yes. this. Yes, yes. So, importantly, the period of 1945 to about 1947 before the Cold War really starts to set in yes it's seen by many people on the ground in France as a pre-revolutionary situation indeed the reason being in, is that in France uh, not only obviously you've had the, the Soviets who defeated uh, Germans the Nazis yeah uh, but you also have in France a situation in which the political right has been discredited completely because of their um, association with uh, the Nazis they collaborated yeah, Petain and Charles and all of these, uh, and that and that um, difficult period of the of the trials and and uh, and and the compromise of, of of I suppose often kind of quite avant garde, but right wing literary like that's fascist right. leaning in, and in, um, intellectuals and artists. With, that's absolutely with the Nazis, right. Yeah. yeah, one of the things that uh, is very clear in the French situation that may not be as clear in an anglophone situation is that 
uh, uh, sorry, artistic avant-garde does not mean uh, left-wing That's revolutionary right. politics. Yes. It also means, um, uh, it can mean um, forms of right-wing anarchism. Yes. It can mean forms of uh, even a, a monarchical kind of thinking that says we need to get back to the monarchy via revolution. Well, that's that's Mora, exactly. right, for instance. Right, so yeah. um, there are a whole, se- and we obviously can look at the Italian futurists as well, of which there are mm. um, a number of um, similarities in the French situation. Ezra Pound. The, 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 Absolutely. Uh, yeah, yeah. And even, even uh, in surrealism, although surrealism tied itself very closely and, and, and consciously so to the political left and to the PCF, is highly politically ambivalent, like an act that, you know, Breton says, you know, what are we, what is a surrealist act to go out and shoot people in the street? Like there's, that's in no way um, a, you know, easily aligned with a Marxist uh, political vision of things. No, in whatever fact, Breton thinks. Like, exactly, yeah, yeah. And whatever Breton thinks about that. And they themselves are very politically ambivalent. Anyway, so the point being that the situation in France at the end of the uh, Second World War is a very particular situation. So you mentioned the trials, and this is something that's, I think, totally important because, the first of all, there was one writer who was indeed hung, Brasillac. Yes. Brasillac. There were others who committed suicide. So these were the ones who collaborated with the Nazis. And there was a genuine and very effective movement uh, by which the literary intelligentsia of the time purged those writers who they thought were collaborating with the Nazis. So Sartre's engaged literature is part of that movement. It's part of what he thinks of purging French letters of the kind of ideological incrustations that would lead it to support fascism or to support um, nationalism or to lead it astray from what he thinks is, what he genuinely thinks is the actual telos of literature, which is a kind of universalism. Yes, kind of socialist universalism. And so this isn't an idiosyncratic fantasy on Sartre's part. Like he, as you say, he's responding to a, a demonstrable tendency in French letters that led That's to right. its that led to its collaboration. And he is fascinated by this to the to to the for, throughout his career. So his work on Flaubert is mm. working through digging up the um, historical foundations for what he sees as some of the. Um, politically and ethically disastrous tendencies within French letters, which lead it down a nihilist path, which lead it down a politically quietist path, down a counter-revolutionary path. And he digs these up, uh, in the case of Flaubert in particular, and um, sees Flaubert as transmitting a virus, if you will, (laughs) to his great um, successors, the first being Baudelaire, then Mallarmé himself. And so Mallarmé is part of a lineage who Sartre would feel very comfortable saying, and he wrote this about Flaubert and the Goncourt uh, in particular, he said, these people are responsible for the repression that followed the commune, for instance. Yeah. Uh, he says that in, in, in um, uh, an early article in Les Temps Modernes, and he says because they didn't lift a finger or they didn't write a line to stop it. Yes. As if the writer is intrinsically responsible for what is occurring in their political domain, as if also they have some efficacy in the situation. Indeed, indeed. There's no point in accusing someone of not doing something if, you know, even if they did it, it wouldn't have any impact at all. That's right. So he certainly believes in the power of literature to um, um, uh, move a situation in a particular direction. So it's imperative for him at this point, at this crucial point of, um, of um, uh, change in French society to set French letters and French culture more generally off on the right track. Yes. Finally, he thinks literally after a century, 1848 to 1945, in which it has taken a disastrous detour. 
And in this initial moment in his engagement with Malame, Malame is very much one of the people who is responsible for this, who participates in the quietest, nihilist, counter-revolutionary uh, uh, tendencies of, of French letters, which I suppose at the material level um, goes along with a uh, more and more of a distanciation or distance taking of the men of letters from the public sphere, uh, um, a refusal to um, engage with the field of mass production, if you will, in a Bourdieuian sense, uh, constituting themselves in a kind of closed off corporation of poets. Um, and this is precisely the model of the writer that Sartre wants to break with. He wants, as he says, to speak to, to everyone. So he kind of revives that romantic dream of the poet who is in touch with everybody in a particular society. One of the most interesting things about his theory of literature is that he says that what a writer should do is that in their writing, you should be able to address at multiple, at the same time, multiple different addressees, people from different backgrounds with different points of reference. The thing that makes that um, um, completely opposed to Malamé, for instance, is that Malamé is writing for a very narrow audience. He's writing for his peers. He's writing for people who recognise his formal innovations. He's writing for people... Um, who he frequents. And this is a material situation. Like He doesn't have the kind of uh, um, uh, range of audience that someone like Zola had or yes. alone Balzac. Oh, indeed. Hugo, indeed. Who, yes. Was, yes. who was a millionaire, maybe even a billionaire by the time he died. He had sold so many books. Yes. Mame is a destitute uh, teacher. Provincial school teacher, yes. Exactly. Yes. exactly. Um, and so Sartre wants to break with that um, figure of the man of French letters. And this is why he treats Malamé so harshly. But what is interesting about Sartre's um, engagement with Malamé is that he can't but find aspects of his own philosophy within Malamé. Indeed. One of the aspects of the uh, nihilist, if you will, tendency of the late uh, 19th century French letters is that what you get is, um, and this is also under the influence of a kind of 19th century scientism, you get a vision of the universe as stripped of any theological teleology uh, under under any 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 sort of um uh objective meaning like as in meaning that has not been imposed by a subject is the absolutely yeah, yeah. um and essentially what you get in Malamé is a very powerful uh, uh evocation of the absoluteness of contingency yes okay so all human activities lead and eventually to nothing they lead to their own dissolution they lead to their own failure. Contingency yeah. comes first. Yeah. The striving for necessity comes second and fails. Yes. You you mention on, on, on this point a number I mean you, you have all of these wonderful quotations um, from from Sartre and, and like these incredibly sort of evocative things that he writes about Malamé, both when he's criticizing him and when he's um, uh, coming to terms with this other um, dimension in his work so you've got this i mean sartre talking about him as as like as a as a poet of, of defeat of a of a of the poet of even even to give it a heideggerian ring of being towards defeat right and the, and that of course is a is a reference to the the revolutionary aspirations and the poetic the sort of you go in poetic aspirations and the revolutionary aspirations but you you um point out as as well um and and you yeah you point out the significance for um uh, Sartre by this uh, of this text by uh, Guimant on the um, the coup of the second of, of December on, right. on on Sartre um, seeing himself 
in a kind of analogous situation to what to what exactly. Malame to what Malame is with regards to the with regards to the Second Empire, yes. Sartre's own generation were in regards to 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 Patan and, exactly. and, and 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 so on. But yeah, I, I mean the first kind of fissure that that I see you you draw out in the Sartrean conception of um, of of Malame the the hermetic bourgeois elitist is first of all and well that there are two things that that i can think of that you bring out in the book one is you talk about the way sartre um uh is as always and as he certainly is in in the family idiot his book on on flaubert attempting to um supplant his rivals in both sort of a marxist literary analysis and psychoanalytic literary analysis and for this you you say on the one hand uh, from the psychoanalytic um, side of things, he's he's influenced by um, uh, a, a kind of examination of the contingent conditions of Malamé's poetic vocation. He talks about um, you, you talk about how Sartre talks about his um, the death of Malamé's mother and the death of his sister, uh, and this being analogous to the way the, a, a famous thing in the biography of um, Kaiser Wilhelm the, the second, right. where with, with his um, uh, with his congenitally. Um, um, crippled uh, uh, left left arm. So on the one hand, there's this uh, there's this early experience of of kind of um, of of meaningless. And I think at some point you quote Sartre saying something like, "It's an early experience of the um, the equal um, indifference." I was yes. about to say meaninglessness. Yes. The equal indifference of all things yes. to each other. That That's this right. is kind of what strikes his um, drives his vocation, but. One of the first fissures, as I was about to say, is, is you. Sartre also seems, on your account, to position Malamé as having maybe, despite himself, maybe not, but this kind of almost a, a kind of class consciousness, right? Like as if he's accurately representing the fact that he's the representative of the the dying bourgeoisie, even though, as you point out, he's not really bourgeois because he's because he's an impoverished school teacher and so on. But but that seems to be the first point that that Sartre wanting to condemn Malamé seems to also suggest, ah, but actually Malamé does have an, an insight into his, his situation, even if he, even if it's provoked by these entirely contingent circumstances, like Malamé is right, as you were saying, about the fundamental contingency of, of, of reality that's yes. been revealed after the death of God. Yes. Yeah. The way that I would put it is as follows. So I think the class consciousness thing um, is... is Sartre does not believe that Malamé has class consciousness. No, he, he, he doesn't have an explicit... Yeah. No, he doesn't. Because um, he clearly does He's not interested in such things. Not, yeah. he, I mean, I think that he is, and we'll have to talk about... Ah, ah okay, 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 sure, okay, sure, sure, sure. sure. Malamé, <laughs> not just the, the sort of the as Sartre's caricature, yeah, yeah. if you will. Um, what I would say is this, is that what Sartre is led to recognise in his account of Malamé is... A tension between his existentialism and his Marxism. Yes. So what occurs in the Malamé book? The Malamé book is doing two things. First of all, it's a again a reprise of the polemic of Sartre's post-war years, which is to say, let's purge French letters of these uh, these nineteenth-century hacks who have um, influenced us so badly over the last hundred years or so. Let's purge them. Mm, indeed. Um, so it's a polemical work, and yes. it's a work that's actually written at the at exactly the same time Sartre writes his most, let's say, Stalinist articles 
um, in, 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 in particular, the uh, brilliant but perverse uh, communist and the peace, peace. Yeah. Uh, which yeah. nobody has ever forgiven him for since. <laughs> um, and so it's a period in which he's very, very close to the communists. Yes. And he's trying to find, I suppose, um, uh, resources that, in a sense, bolster his conviction that he should be on the side of the proletariat. Indeed. He should be on the side of the communists. And again, he finds them in the collective sins of the literary intelligentsia in the 19th century. Mm-hmm. And so his polemic against Mallarmé is, is very, very strong uh, in that book. But the other thing that he's doing in that book is reprising another Sartrean obsession, namely biography. And he wants to be able to account for the singular genesis of kind of universal theses, particularly with regard to ontology, for instance. Um, yes. His idea is that what existentialism can do, that Marxism can't do, and that psychoanalysis can't do, is it can tell you why an individual did what they did in history. Yes. So, um, why was Malame the person to be this exceptional figure within the literary and, um, let's say, wider cultural sphere? What was it about his singular trajectory that allowed him to, in a sense, um, um, feel or be um, gripped by and propose a solution to the problems which were kind of diffusely spread out across the ambient culture? Yes. Um, and Sartre thinks that only existentialism allows you kind of bring the two sides together. On the one hand, the singular familial situation out of which it is, out of which Malame grows, and on the other hand, the vast social forces um, that, um, that also impact upon the situation. So Sartre is trying to show how Malame, according to his own singular trajectory, came um, to a kind of point of extreme lucidity about a certain aspect of modernity that nobody else because of their own singular trajectory, had actually really got yet, really understood. And that had to do with precisely the absoluteness of contingency, uh, even if humans are continu- continuously aspiring towards necessity. So yes. Malamé understands this because of certain uh, accidents of his own individual trajectory. And he puts that into his poetry. Now, in Being a Nothingness, um, if you wanted to summarise it in... in um, in a couple of sentences, it will come down to the aporetic dialectic between um, the for itself and the in itself. Yes. The for itself striving towards um, a, a pretty much a point of being God, which is to be mean something that is identical to itself, which is cause of itself, but which is also conscious of itself. And this striving for that form of necessity is constantly undercut, necessarily by the brute, inert contingency of the in itself. And this is the basic dialectic that we see, a kind of stumbling um, uh, dialectic that we find in being in nothingness. It's interesting, given how basic that dialectic is, how much in the um, reception of Sartre, I feel, I feel that the fact that it is a dialectic, the fact that there, are, there is that uh, aporia is so often overlooked. Yes. Like you often, as in the vision of Sartre, is actually... Of as if he only has. I mean, the same the same argument is made of Fichte as if yes. he only as if he is the thinker of the 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 unopposed, the frictionless for itself, which is which is obviously nonsense, and not just at the time the critique of dialectical reason, but from being in a thickness itself. Yeah. Um, and so what he finds in Malame. Yeah. is a prefiguring, if you will, of that same dialectic. Yes, yes. The same dialectic. Malamé uh, encounters it in the domain of poetry in particular. Yes. The domain of poetry which, with its theological baggage, if you will, is constantly tri- striving towards a form of pure ideal necessity. This poem is only is as it could be because basically I am just the conduit for a divine voice. Like, 
God is creating a perfect work of art. But the, con the consciousness of contingency that these modern poets have, and it's mediated by all the failures of the political dreams of the modern age in France, they know that that um, uh, striving for towards necessity is a kind of necessary illusion, that it will be undercut. You'll throw the dice and you won't abolish chance. You'll never abolish chance, even yes, if yes. The, the, the presupposition of your act of throwing the dice is precisely, maybe I'll abolish chance this time. <laughs> and this is the, the same trap that the four itself gets itself stuck in over and over again in being in nothingness. So the point being is that Sartre finds within Malamé a prefiguring of certain of his existentialist ideas. Yes. But the bind that he finds himself in at the end of the book, which he doesn't finish, it's just a... Uh, set of manuscript notes. This is the text uh, Lucidity and its Blind Spot? Indeed, or, yeah, yeah, yeah. La Lucidité sa face d'ombre. Ouais. And this book itself, um, uh, we only have about 100 pages of the manuscript, and that's what we're talking about here. Um, even if it was in, in originally a 500-page manuscript, which, by the way, was blown up by right-wing uh, fascist, uh, sorry, anarchist um, uh, um activists in the <laughs> OAS during the Algerian War. So oh my God, contingency have, intervenes again. <laughs> indeed, and uh, we actually have a very Malamé figure of the bomb, and we'll talk about anarchism a bit later yes, on, because sure, sure. uh, Malamé said very famously the only bomb that he knew of was a book. Yes. And we'll, we'll, we'll talk about the difference between the way that Sartre interprets that and the Telkelians perhaps later on. They yes, very yes. different readings of that. I, I recall you have Sartre saying um, that, that Malamé was not an anarchist and could never be an anarchist. And could never be yeah. an anarchist, and he... Uh, he has this brutal line. He has a number of very, very brutal mm -hmm. lines uh, about Malamé. And the line about the bomb is that Malamé, he says that Malamé would never get his hands dirty. Yes. Right? He would never actually intervene into reality, never actually engage in what such calls praxis. Mm, indeed. Um, and he would, he would prefer this uh, kind of um, totalizing destruction and negation of the universe in the poem. The poem is precisely what, um, as a pure irreality, that's such a irreality. Yeah. Um, is, a t is insofar as it does not exist a total negation of the universe as it is yes um, so Malamé um, trades in the particular violence of anarchism which always exerts itself here in a particular moment a praxis for this totalizing negation of all that absolutely yes. is and uh, Sartre thinks this is a totally impotent obviously mm. like it's a position of complete impotence but it's also his definition of evil <laughs> and he says there is nothing worse than impotence in evil and this is his kind of brutal line about Malamé. Um, so, but the point being, and the point of ambivalence that Sartre has led to, is that he cannot, on the one hand, treat Malamé as a kind of existentialist hero avant la lettre mm. and condemn him for uh, his political waywardness without finding a real palpable tension within his own thinking as well between the existentialist uh, side of his thought and the nascent Marxism that he's developing at that point. That's what the Malamé case. That's the impasse that the Malamé case leads him to. Yes, that's um, that's that's so fascinating, and 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 it's why it's why I think that the the Sartre chapter that you write is is so strong and compelling because you can see. I mean, I I think uh, some of your quotations from Sartre in facing this dilemma, like like Sartre, I mean, never want to shy away from the rhetoric, but even for Sartre, I think is just led into these kind of extraordinary heights of of prose poetry in in his denunciatory sort of remarks about Malamé, but also in, in, in just describing the kind of pathos of Malamé's situation as a poet and as a, as a, and as a 
person as a historical uh, uh, facing a particular historical conjuncture i mean you bring out uh for instance uh there's this extraordinary quote you have from sartre um that i'll try to i i, I can't remember in its entirety but it's it's one in which you show the way um Sartre's talking about Malamé's uh, anti-naturalism, right? right? Something something that recalls, of course, Baudelaire, that yes. recalls that recalls Huisman. And you talk about the way that um, Sartre Sartre brings out the way that this this anti-naturalism actually um, it evokes a kind of impoverishment of multiple domains of not just not just the sort of emptiness of the cosmos of, of Pascal's silence of infinite spaces, but also political impotence, also the fact that one is alienated because the, the class values that determine that your poetic po uh, vocation are dying because you belong to a dying class and that all of this is manifest in this in this evil perhaps again in a in a Baudelarian sense sort yes. of sort of re uh, rejection of that of that which is right yes. um but following that um you, uh, I mean, because as you say, this reveals the the tension in Sartre's own position between between uh, existentialism and Marxism when he is at his most, or perhaps doctrinaire as a as a Marxist, given given the particular historical circumstances. Uh, one of the points you suggest that this kind of comes undone after the forties, kind of much later in Sartre's career, um, is comes comes through something that I think we'll talk more about as we as we go through your thesis, which is Sartre coming to recognize the portion of uh, uh, Malamé's oeuvre, uh, and perhaps Arcudide in, in particular, that is dedicated to doing something like constructing a secular religion and thus addressing explicitly this question of universal address contra the apparent hermeticism of, right. of, of, of that poem in particular and, and the oeuvre in, in general. Yeah. And this is something we'll talk about um with respect to Badiou, who Indeed. has exactly the same point to make. Very intriguingly, yes. Uh, yes. Uh, very Sartrean move on Badiou's part there. But I suppose the point to be made here is that Sartre, uh, when he's denouncing Malamé, the grist to his mill is, let's say, the early Malamé. The Malamé yes. is still under the melancholy sign of Baudelaire, yes. who is ruminating about the, the, the death of the universe, um, who is ruminating about um, the ultimate futility of all human action. Yes. Don't even get started if you fail. <laughs> yes, yes. Um, and Sartre talks about this as a kind of consciousness that has zoomed out of its historical circumstance and is looking at the vast swathe of human history as this failure upon failure upon failure, rather than precisely his ideal of situated action. Indeed. You know, in terms of particular, particular frameworks of intelligibility. Um, but Malamé himself um, moves beyond this Baudelarian uh, melancholy. Indeed, yeah. Um, he moves towards a kind of uh, revitalization of the romantic dream of the poet as the spiritual guide. Yes, indeed. Um, yeah. in, in, a, in an amazingly specific way, because Malamé is 100% um, atheist. In a, yes. Like in, a, in a way which, is, which, is a, which we're still kind of coming to terms with. I think His that's atheism true. Yes, yes. Is, um, has, he's gone to the end, and it's very hard to go to the end with atheism. But Malamé, in a sense, did. Yes. Um, he's trying to forge a kind of religion which would bind together a society, which would not be a theological bond, would not be guaranteed by the um, by the divine, but would also he's also against the way that the state binds us together. Yes. And he's also against the way that the market binds us together. And so the only other option that he thinks we have is poetry. Yes. Okay. And so Sartre 
having read Malame. He's read him from beginning to end. There's a point at which his own um, polemical uh, interests crash against the rocks of the actual content of Malame. <laughs> indeed, itself. indeed. But there are moments where he's very, very happy to point to Malame's communitarian uh, uh, aspects, uh, utopian aspects, and to basically adopt them for himself. And to say, look, Malame was doing exactly what I wanted to do. And if you don't mind, I'll give you a quote from Sartre now, because it's, it's actually Sartre talking in an interview. But the quote is quite amazing. Just somebody talking off the top of their head. Uh, Sartre has this incredible brain. Um, but um, I'll give you the quote now in which he uh, says something that um, goes against all everything that we've been talking about mm-hmm. so far, which is a total, um, re- total revision of his vision of Malamé, if you will. So he says, and this is from an interview in 1959, he says, Malamé refused his time, yet he conserved it as a transition, like a tunnel. He hoped that one day there would be performed before the public, which he called the crowd, and which he conceived as a mass public inhabiting an atheist cathedral rather than a theatre, the tragedy. This tragedy will be the sole unique tragedy, at once the drama of man, the movement of the world, the tragic return of the seasons, and whose author, as anonymous as Homer, would be dead, or rather lost amongst the audience, and who would witness the unfolding of a masterwork that would belong to, not belong to him, but which all would give to all. Malamé tied his Orphic and tragic conceptions of poetry to the communion of a people rather than to an individual hermeticism. <laughs> so a total uh, <laughs> An inversion, yes, flip indeed, flop, indeed, right? indeed. Um, and, but the point is, is that Sartre is absolutely right to point out that dimension of Malamé. That's right. And it matches the utopian thrust of his own vision of literature in the post-war period. And we'll see every all of the other figures that you talk about in your book will will take this up will take up precisely this this question exactly. of of Malamé's radicalism. Exactly. Mm. It's 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 really so 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 fascinating. Um, uh, I was actually thinking when you mentioned um, th- uh, theology uh, that there's something about about uh, Malamé's atheism that, that uh, reminds me of a, a relatively recent uh, book by uh, Christopher Watkin at Monash called Difficult Atheism. Mm-hmm. It's about um, North Sea, Badiou and Mayasu, and, uh, which has, has the essential thesis that, that the, problem, the problem with atheism is it's, uh, as it's usually considered, is it's too, it's too much uh, mere negation of certain sort of religious conflict and therefore and therefore belongs within the framework of sort of religious discourse. Whereas what Watkin calls a difficult atheism, more radical atheism would actually attempt to sort of reoccupy um, the territory that had previously been filled by relig- by religious discourse. And I think we see this in 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 Malame, and I, I think it's certainly um, one of the connections between Malame, uh, uh, what, why Malame is maybe resonant for a figure like Kantan Mayasu, who you discuss in the conclusion. Yes. Of the thesis. Look, I think that's a really important point. Malame is somebody, and this will sound a little bit strange, who's quite like Feuerbach. Aha. Who's quite like uh, Feuerbach, and even Marx to a degree, uh, in the sense that he believes that religion itself is obviously some kind of projection of real human qualities that's onto right. a transcendent being so kind of inversion yes um, yes he believes that uh, religion itself is absolutely necessary yes uh, to the constitution of a society uh, to a people uh, but he believes that the theological aspect the properly theological aspect is obviously false yes but nevertheless there a a consequent atheism 
must precisely, as you say, reoccupy the, the realm of the religious. And Mallarmé is fascinated by this totally obscure and totally mad work of 19th century anthropology by an Englishman called George Cox, called Les Dieux Antiques, so the ancient gods, mm. in which uh, the thesis is proposed that um, the gods come from language. Okay, so uh, language is the precise domain in which we come up, first of all, with this conception of things like gods and things like um, a world beyond the world that um, we exist in now. And that we, as and the poet, is well-placed to reoccupy that domain because their domain is language itself, they know the power of words. They can revitalize um, that um, initial um, movement of language towards the theological, but again, obviously undercutting it with, with a uh, consequent atheism. So Malamé's uh, project, and this is something that Ronsier picks up on um, uh, very well, is the constitution of a new religion that would, in a kind of 19th century vein, reoccupy the domain of religion, understand that the powers that religion had typically invested in the divine, the beyond, the transcendent, are imminent human powers. Yes. Not in the sense of an individual's power, but Never in the no. sense of language's power. Yes. We inhabit language. We um, inhabit language is our own. Um, we are languages. Languages is, sorry. Yes. And uh, it is on that uh, stage, if you will, that we need to rethink uh, theology, we need to rethink the communal bond. Your answer um, gives me a, a perfect link to the second chapter of your thesis, which is on, which is on uh, Julia Kosteva's uh, revolution in poetic language and the Tarkelian response to it, because this, this uh, the, the significance of the domain of language as this as this machine to, to misquote Bergson as a, as, a, as a machine for producing gods um, but uh, that that also that also reminds me before I get into Christopher I mean uh, and I think also as a, as a kind of segue to her work and the work of Telkel although although also aspects of Badius and Ronsier's appropriation is is what I think your um, analogy with Feuerbach is is perfectly accurate at the level of um, there's a, there's an alienation of uh, onto the transcendent. There's an alienation of say of say powers that do not belong to these divine beings who do not exist onto them. But of course, at the same time, what will interest the, some of the commentators you look at is is that Malame is not a is not a humanist life force. So even it, just as it isn't the individual human being with her creative capacities, it also isn't humanity as the uh, you know it, it it's not a sort of um, humanist anthropology of creativity. There's something there's there's something of that um, language will have. I mean, if instead of human beings being a god, if if language is is a, a sort of abyss out of which gods are made then language is is also i mean i mean the that it, it, then it is also an abyss in the in the sense that it has something of the kind of the 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 dark god of of yes. sort of ultra protestant theology of a kind of Karl Barth something yes. like that that's that's implicit in, in what you're saying so so let's um so let's turn to to the second chapter of your thesis where um around around the journal uh, Telkau and this is um, Talcao, uh, sort of famously um, edited by Philippe Soler and Julius Christeva, published some of the early work of Jacques Derrida. We're now in the we're now in the in the nineteen sixties, around and, and particularly sort of before, but but 
uh, even more so sort of following the another defeat, another political defeat of, of, May, of May 68. And this is the time where you think, um, accepting perhaps a, a kind of prototype in, in certain surrealist attitudes to Malamé in the 1930s. This is where the figure of Comrade Malamé, of, of Malamé, our uh, Maoist terrorist of language, our yes. indispensable figure for, yes. for, for the revolution, Indeed. sort of comes into being. It's yes. Telkel and Comrade Malamé. Tell, tell us a bit that's about right. that, Robert. Yeah, um, that's absolutely right. One interesting point, though, you mentioned surrealism. Surrealism wasn't interested in Malamé. Ah, I thought. Sorry, I thought I. I think I. I got that from a conversation we had ages ago. Where oh. I got something. Sorry. <laughs> well, um, the surrealist um, didn't uh, get interested in Malamé uh, because at that point he was occupied exclusively by uh, Paul Valéry. Ah. Paul Valéry is the uh, is the representative of classicism. Um, of a classicist kind of modernism within the early 20th century France, which is precisely not what surrealism is. And, and what so, Telkel will also reject as its arch enemy. Exactly, yep. yeah. And um, Telkel is named after a Valerie yes. uh, 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 work of essays. I hope uh, that's right. Um, Telkel, precisely. So that's an interesting historical point. Yeah, 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 yeah. The surrealists uh, liked... Um, uh, L'autre amant, yes, yes. much more than they liked yes. Malamé, who they precisely saw as the uh, as the disciple of, or sorry, not the disciple, precisely the master of Valéry, who mm -hmm. was the enemy in a sense, mm -hmm. the enemy in French letters at that point. But um, Telkel, I think an important thing to say is that Telkel don't begin as a leftist um, political journal. No, no, indeed. they begin precisely. Um, as a journal who is waging war against Sartrean um, yes. submission of literature to the demands of politics, and they affirm the autonomy of literature from the demands of politics. Yes. They begin in 1960. Telkel begins in 1960. It's not until 1967, for instance, that they have links to the Communist Party. It's about 1965 that they begin to become politicised, and I'll say a bit why that is the case. Yes, please. One of the interesting things about the genesis of Telkel is that A, it begins apolitically, in a kind of polemical way, if you will. Like mm -hmm. it's, a, um, it's a gesture of saying, no, literature can pursue its own formal inventions without being submitted to the punctual demands of politics. Mm -hmm. um, it's very much contra Sartre, like explicitly exactly opposed to Sartre. Yeah, 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 exactly contra yeah. Sartre. Um, the thing that makes that thesis um, powerful at that time is not only that it articulates a generational gap between Sartre and his successors who want to kill the father, obviously, but it also resonates um, well with uh, the advent of structuralism in the, uh, in the study of literature. Because what structuralism does, and in particular this is the first time that in France we have the Russian formalists being uh, translated. Yes. What you have is a reprise of the problematic that the Russian formalists had at the centre of their um, uh, researches, namely, what is what is literature? What is literariness? What is literature in its singularity, in its autonomy? And what is its relationship to to language in general? Like as Indeed. a as a yeah, and as in, especially if language is conceived as a as a system. Yes. What then is what then is literature? What then is literature that within that yeah. system? Yeah. And the. The way that structuralism is um, received as a novel, revolutionary, mm -hmm. uh, scientific paradigm, actually they think it's scientific, we might say scientific, but they think it's scientific, it gives a kind of um, boost to the thesis that, hey, we're actually going to be able to tell you now 
what the literariness of literature is. Yes. Okay. Which is terribly exciting for these exciting. literature students in the... In the exactly. Place. So it's not just, hey, we hate Sartre. No, of course. It's also, hey, we hate Sartre, and we have a really cool theory to show why we should hate Sartre. <laughs> we have a theory about the autonomy of literature. And this is the argument that Telkel prosecute for about the first five years of their existence. Yes. Now, their audience, and here I'm going to get a little bit sociological, their audience are students yes. and marginal academics. Yes. Okay. This is the body of people who are going to become more and more politicised across the course of the 1960s as the de Gaullist dictatorship sets in. Okay. We have like a, a moment of... Uh, uh, of of calm after the end of the Algerian War, but as the 60s go on, you have more and more students coming into the universities, particularly into humanities faculties. You have more and more academics who are there to teach those students who are kind of on the outer of the inner circle of the French university system. All of these people are susceptible to radical ideas. They're susceptible to the idea, let's break the world into two, we're new, we're radical, etc. And Telkel, they're the people they're writing for. And so they have an audience who's becoming ever more politicised. And they themselves are becoming ever more politicised. They belong to the same milieu, if you will. And so the circle that they have to square, and this is, this is the kind of impulse of the whole Telkelian program, what makes it so interesting, is they have to square the circle between, A, the autonomy of literature. Okay, they have to show why literature is autonomous, what is literariness in literature. And Malame is definitely a predecessor here. He's a person that poses exactly the same question. Yes. But they also have to show how, why, in being autonomous, in pursuing its own singular telos, it is exemplarily political. Yeah, it has to be. It has to be a because and not despite. Exactly. It's, a, it's, a, it's autonomy. That's right. Exactly. So and, they have to square that circle. Yes. And you, you make that. Um, I mean, you know, feel free to correct me if if you think this is a false Im- impression, but. Uh, in, in my sense, the, the reading or the response to Manamé that you're, you're least sympathetic to in the book is that of the Telkelians, right? And I think, and my sense is that um, part of this lack of sympathy for it is, is precisely um, the fact that you can explain their, their reading or the way they, or the way they, they um, invent this figure of, of Comrade Malamé um, almost exhaustively in, in, in the kind of Bourdieu in sociological terms that you, you just mentioned, that, that it's almost as apart from serving this role of sort of going, how can you, how can you sort of insist via, well, we'll talk about this in a moment, sort of Chris Davis theses on the, on the semiotic as opposed to the symbolic and so on, on this, on this absolute radicality of something that is, as Sartre would point out, like in, in fact very distant from politics, right? That that you you, you sort of I, I mean I don't I don't want to make because it is a very subtle chapter and you look at you know you look at in some detail at Chris Davis made voice and she talks about Malame all the time in yes. Revolutions of Poetic Language in her yes. book on nineteen seventy three avant garde from Le Tremont to uh, to Malame. Um, but it, it seems to me that, that your the- your thesis is that is that it, it the, the arguments of Tokar perform almost an entirely ideological function in terms yes. of um, positioning literature in such a way that it can be both the object of a kind of um, ah, uh, almost a, 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 a sort of a scientific study via structuralist methods and at the same time claim a kind of political radicalism without which the study of literature would would be would be yes. compromised in the ideas of the of the uh, currently uh, at the time radicalized student movement in France yes. 
Yeah. Well, let, let me put it this way. Let me um, uh, let me let me say let me say it in this way. So, first of all, we have a content form distinction. Okay? Yes. So, the Telkelians are talking about um, they have to find an answer at the level of form. Yes. To why why literature is inherently radical. Yes. Okay. They can't do it at the level of content. That's the Sartre and Sartrean move. Like. Literature for Sartre is politically progressive because it talks about the world in which we live. It unveils it for us. It shows us how we can um, intervene into it. It shows the lines of fracture in the situation that we inhabit such that we can orient ourselves towards that world in a way which is um, uh, more lucid than we were before then. So they have to find an answer at the level of form okay, to why literature is radical. And what this is going to lead them to do is precisely not treat Malame as a comrade. Yes. He precisely has to become an enemy again. Yes. Uh, and this is part of the sort of the, um, the, 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 the dialectical reversal that occurs in their, necessary dialectical reversal that occurs in their reading. The reason for this is, is very simple. If, you, if you're going to make the argument that uh, literature has a, an intrinsic political capacity and if you're going to be a literary and political avant-garde, you're going to have to make that argument at some point. Otherwise, your whole uh, ideological edifice will fall down. Indeed. But the thing you have to do along with that is, if such a power exists within literature, why hasn't it shown itself to the full degree yet? That's right. As in, if, if, if like, I mean, despite the fact that they will make Malame... Uh, in, to some extent, and Chris Sable particularly, an exemplar of this revolution in poetic language, as you say, she's also got to account, or they have to account, Soler and Jean-Jacques also have to account for why, if they ascribe the sort of political power to his uh, formal innovations exactly. that they do, why that doesn't, if it has the sort of political power that they give it, why it doesn't lead to, say, the victory of the commune instead Indeed. of its defeat. Yeah, That's absolutely right. Yeah. Um, and so, effectively, the answer that they give is that Malame uh, repressed or suppressed or foreclosed uh, the formal radicalism beneath a kind of conservative content. If you yes, know. yes. He misrecognised the radicalism of his form um, and pasted, pasted over the top of it with this spurious discourse about religion. Mm. And this is where the, um, the religion question comes back in. Because for Gustava, the religion aspect is not part of... The, what is essential about Malame's project is actually a fetish that yes. hides over something much more radical. That's her term. That yeah, is that's exactly yeah, her term. Yeah. Her, her term, um, uh, her, her, the last 300 pages of um, Revolution of which haven't been translated into English, mm -hmm. which, but which is a, a, a great error because they're the whole point of the book, because the first part of the book is establishing a theory mm. of the why literature, and particularly poetic language, is inherently politically radical but the last 300 pages of the book is the long discussion and um, argument for why if those powers exist why haven't they shown themselves yet and that she can't dispense with that moment of her argument no okay. so it's very interesting symptomatically that hasn't absolutely I, I think that you know I think that there's more to that than simply the fact that no publisher is going to probably publish a 600-page uh, book, which is what uh, Revolution Poetic Language is. Yes. But I think that the reception of Chris Saver's work would be very, very different if people had translated that aspect of the book and had understood the problem it's trying to solve. Yes. The problem it's trying to solve is precisely the one that we're talking about. Yes. How is it? What were the 
necessarily contingent historical constraints that stopped up this power inherent in literature. Okay. And Kristeva's answer, uh, which I think mutilates Malamé's corpus, is that he suppresses the formal radicalism between the conservative religious content. Okay. And the solution to that is obviously to pass through the Telkelian theory of the text. You need the scientific supplement in order to say, okay, we're not going to be, we're not going to fall into the same trap again. We're going to bypass these theoretical means and use them in order to precisely take one step beyond Malamé. Yes. They have to treat Malamé at once as a kind of hero, at once as a kind of glorious ancestor, as a prophet, but also as a person who necessarily failed to do something that they themselves believe they it's, are the only people able to do. It's still possible, right? That they're still an avant-garde. They, they have yeah. to be able to yeah. say that. Yeah. And Kruseva is quite literally led in the thesis to say that there is a kind of telos, if you will. This is the totally very traditional um, side of her work. Like It's very teleological, it's very metaphysical in this sense. She's led to say things which sound almost like a joke, such that, we, such that there is a lineage of French letters going from Malamé to Philippe Solet. <laughs> and I hope that people will understand that that is somewhat laughable. <laughs> if you've read particularly Philippe Solet's novels, works from the 1960s and the 1970s. But she has to be able to point out an example of literary praxis that has not fallen into Malamé's traps, that has precisely not covered over the formal radicalism with a fetish. She has to find an example. She's only got Philip Solers. <laughs> but I think that gives a lie to the whole procedure. Indeed. Um, I think that uh, the distinction between the content and form here is entirely arbitrary. Yes. And is a product of the um, problem they were trying to solve, which was why this political radicalism hadn't precisely manifested itself. They had to have some kind of scission within the work um, between form and content in order to explain that. It also seems to, I mean, go against the point that, that the, the point is that the poetic radicalism is located in the formal dimension, right? So, so this kind of return of content as that which can undermine the formal dimension exactly. seems to contradict that thesis, you know, the, fun, the fundamental thesis about, about literature that they're getting, um, you know, via structuralism and the Russian formalist and so on. So Absolutely. It, it, is quite, it is quite odd and I think sort of unintelligible without the sort of um, sociological interpretation yes. that you give of it. Yes. They, they, have to, they have to live up to a promise. The avant-garde is always making claims about itself. It's always saying, yes. we are the avant-garde for these reasons. We are the avant-garde who is more avant-garde than the previous avant-gardes. We have to be able to explain why the other avant-gardes failed and why we can take up the, uh, the th red thread of history, if you will. Okay. And they have to provide answers to that question, and they have to also scapegoat, if you will, figures from the past, including Malamé himself. So he is a comrade, definitely, but he's also an enemy. Yes. He has to be an enemy. Yes. He has to be somebody who betrayed the dream that they are still trying to keep alive. And the answer that they give is theoretically, um, I think, weak. Um, I think it mutilates Malamé's work. And I think it's not um, an accident that once the, uh, let's say, the sociological situation that they were inhabiting dissipated with the, um, the onset of the Mitterrand years in France, that Telkel itself became a pretty conservative right-wing uh, publication. Yes. Um, the kind of 
theoretical apparatus that they had built was very fragile and it was very easy for it to just dissipate and for them to go on and seek uh, salvation elsewhere. For example, Pope John Paul II for Philip Solares or America for Julie Kristeva. Yes, this is why they can seem were like like opportunists in the and and, yes. and uh, uh, in the way. And, and perhaps this is a reasonable introduction to the third chapter of your thesis, but in the way um, that Alain Badiou sees a lot of his, his formerly radical, nominally nominally Maoist comrades of the, of the 60s and early 70s, you know, you know Badiou will, will often dis- describe when he explains the, the renegacy of, of, of so many of his generation, um, he, he will often say, you know, it, it, that it was only opportunism that led to their radicalism. Yes. That when, when speaking of people uh, like like uh, Le Nouveau Philosophe, as well as as well as um, as well as uh, someone like someone like Philippe Soler, that that you know they were radical at a point when it looked like you know the left were going to take power in France, and once that was no longer a possibility, where you could become like the leaders of 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 um, the the ascendant power, exactly. you then you then renege, you then sort of renounce, you sort of you go back to a kind of um, defeatism, kind of ironically into a kind of melancholy haute bourgeois position of the kind that people often have ascribed to Mallarmé, exactly. like as the exactly yeah yeah. Um, yeah. So that's very interesting. So, so um, yeah, with with that, I'd like to lead into the third chapter of your thesis to your discussion of of uh, Alain Badi, which is really d- divided into into two sections as i mentioned before um, malame is, is this constant presence in badi's over i've actually never seen i i don't think i can think of a text of badi's that doesn't invoke malame at least kind of implicitly or sotto voce or something or something like that but your um discussion of badi's response to malame is is based on first the role that he plays in um, that Malame plays for Badiou in uh, theory of the subject, right. uh, and subsequently in the changed role that Malame plays from the time of being an event onwards, where he yeah. becomes, as you mentioned earlier, the the poet of the of the event. Yeah. Right. Um, but first, um, let's talk about theory of the subject, because um, which I know is a text that has been uh, preoccupying mm. you of late, and that you have have plans in the future to to write more about. So what what's the role and and I know it is a it is a again and it even recapitulates some of the um, tensions and contradictions we find in the Telkal readings and in Sartre's reading yes. of the, the the again Badiou the ambivalent uh, role that Badiou assigns to Malame in his um, what what's the date nineteen eighty one book it's, uh, it's published in eighty two eighty two yeah but it three emerges three. out of seminars from seventy five to seventy nine yeah right yes. right right so it will be it will be published is that. Is when is Mitterrand? In, in Mitterrand comes to power in um, oh goodness me, eighty eighty one. Yeah, yeah. 81. So it's it's very much like, I mean, it just I I, I I knew it was around there. So it's again, it's a nice sort of uh, bookend with the, with the history of Telkel right. that where Telkel is is reneging and and discovering the Pope and and and, and the the um, uh, justice dispensing. Uh, magic of, of the U.S. Army and, 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 and so on. As, as um, instead, uh, Badiou is is as he tends to holding holding the line, right? Yes. Like staying staying Absolutely. with Mao and Malame in the nineteen as Absolutely. as the the Swadis on left have taken power in 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 France. Right. And, so and this is this is theory of the subject. Yes, and look, theory of the subject. There's so many things to say about it, but let's begin by saying that. Badiou himself sees an historical homology between the post-commune era in the Third Republic and um, the Mitterrand era, if you will. 
He does. He he he. he Brings that about every time he, almost every time he mentions Malame in that Pretty book, much. right? He mentions this a lot. In right? fact, like, yes, exactly. Yes. Um, because he sees a certain left as um, uh, wrapping itself in the red flag, if you will, um, but in order to attract the utopian desires of the people, right? And then betraying them. This is what a particular Republican left does in France all the time. Wraps itself in the garb of the French Revolution, in the garb of the Commune, in the garb of the Resistance, but only to betray it. They only use that particular um, flag um, in order to attract the desires of the people, and then they betray it within after the after having been elected. Yes, Bayeux's view of um, Mitterrand, and so again, like we have in Sartre, every time there is. Uh, this moment at which in France, so the post-war period, 1945-47, or the post-68 movement, where you have, on the one hand, a, a movement that looks like having progressive revolutionary promise that is then betrayed or crushed, you have endless reflections on the commune, or endless reflections on the 1848, as if we can see what people did then, what kind of their failures were, who acted in a noble way, who acted in a, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a terrible way. And in a sense, using that as a grid, a schema of intelligibility for understanding what should we do in the present. Mm. And so one of my arguments with respect to the role that uh, Malmé plays in theory of the subject is that he is a kind of mirror image, if you will, a specular mirror image um, to Badiou himself. Malame is a figure in that book of uh, political endurance. We need ethical endurance yes. um, in a yes. more abstract level because he's somebody that doesn't compromise with a politically contemptuous period, who stays uh, true to whatever the idea he was pursuing. And this is precisely Badiou's um, uh, vision of him and what he extracts from him. So on the positive side of his estimation of Malame, he sees Malame as a glorious ancestor um, to the degree that he too... Um, found a way of holding fast to an idea yes. throughout a particular period in which that idea was massively marginalised, defeated or fragile. So has the heroic status of something like a, an Archimedes continuing with his, with his geometry as, as um, Syracuse eye burns or, or yes. like, like not letting what happens at the level of the police, at the level of reactionary forces coming yes. into power, sort of, uh, again, very, very, very significant for the time Badiou is writing, put him off the, the ultimately revolutionary goal indeed. of his work. Yeah. Yes, indeed. Um, so we have a, a projection onto Malame of a particular um, uh, position, a social position that Badiou is occupying at the same time um, in a sort of uh, a homology between the post-commune period and the post-68 period. Yes. Okay. Um, now, things get more complicated because Malame is again not just going to be um, a positive figure in Badiou's vision of things. Badiou reads Malame in theory of the subject in a way which is I think it's important to bring this out, very different to the Telkelians in an obvious way. First of all, Badger is not interested in advancing an argument regarding the intrinsically political powers of literature. No. Okay. He's not saying uh, political action should pass through literature. No. Badger is somebody who throughout the late 60s, or even before, from the late 50s indeed, was engaged in concrete political action. Yes. So in the late 50s, early 60s, he's engaged with the PSU, um, um, uh, militating um, for uh, um, liberation of Algeria um, yes. um, with respect to France, uh, who had it as a colony. Um, he is engaged um, amongst the, his own particular Maoist group, the UCFML, throughout the late 60s, early 70s, 
in day-to-day political struggles. So, for instance, organising with immigrant workers living in uh, hostels that the French government had constructed for them and they had kind of segregated them there. So he's somebody who the day-to-day practice is not um, publishing an avant-garde journal or writing literature, but is, is out on the street pamphleting, uh, organising, um, writing very, very specific studies of the um, situation of, of uh, farmers in a particular region of France. These are the things that he does day to day. So he's not somebody who has uh, the uh, idea that political action should pass through literature qua literature. Which anticipates his, his notion of the, the autonomy of the, of the four generic procedures at, at, at the time of being an event, like, like the distinction be, and, and the relative autonomy of, of politics, mm. science, art and love. But also, I think... Um, places him uh, structurally in a very different situation to that of the Telkalians in that he doesn't, he has no reason to argue that literature should be interpreted as politics because he's already engaged exactly. with politics and literature. Yes, as, he's, as he's not going to submit yeah. it to this sort of factitious um, and distorting scale of values yes. that the Telkalians, in my view, do. Yes. He's, those questions are, are not relevant for him. He's not yes. going to distort the Malamean text in order to make it, you know, to fit it into that particular paradigm. Yeah, it's not part of a, to use a, a term, I think you quote a Bourdieuian sociologist at some point, he, he doesn't have the legitimate, you, you, you use the term legitimation circuit. Yeah, of the circuit term. of legitimation, yeah, yeah. exactly. He doesn't have that same circuit of legitimation. Um, and for him it's irrelevant. But obviously he is using Malamean. And he is somebody who, being so politically engaged, has to, in a sense, justify his recourse to Malamean. Yes. Okay. He has to say, why you, my Maoist comrades, should listen to me when I talk about Malame. Yes. Because it's important to remember that the theory of the subject is presented in a seminar setting. Yes. Okay, the Université de Vincennes, which is a kind of hotbed of radicalism at that point. Indeed. We can set up to take the radicals out of Paris. <laughs> That's exactly yeah, right. Yes. And yes. we can, we can um, re-establish, we can establish fairly well um, who precisely his audience is who is in the auditorium with him, what kind of desires they have, what kind of background knowledge they have, what their own um, uh, relationship to um, the material that Baju is presenting is. And so theory of the subject is addressed to people who agree with Baju politically. Okay, so it makes no concessions to anybody who doesn't agree. Oh, no. I think no, no, anybody no. that's read this book would understand that you, you sign <laughs> a very particular contract in order to read the book at all. That's so true, yes. Um, and so we can, we can see who he's talking to. We can see that quite clearly. And he has to justify to these people, who are militants, why we should talk about Malamé. Mm. There are two reasons, I think. And one of them is positive and one of them is, in a sense, ambivalent again. Mm. So Malamé, again, going back to what we said, is uh, at once a figure of political endurance, uh, this patient, ethical figure who is committed to not compromising Mm. with the politically contemptuous situation he finds himself in. Does not give ground on his desire. Exactly. However, the other thing that he does in the lineage of the Romantics is nevertheless, even from that position of marginalisation, from that position of isolation, purports to speak for the true political essence of the people. Okay, so I know precisely, Malamé, what the true political being of the people would be. I know how it is perverted by whatever mechanism, by the state, by the market, by crap literature, by (laughs) crap theatre, by Wagner. I can see those perversions. And I have a positive conception of what the true political essence of the people would be. Um, Even if they don't have it yet, 
um, even if I don't have the immediate means in order to reveal that to them or lead them in that direction. This position is fairly homologous to the position that Badger is occupying as well. He sees the um, stifling of the May 68 flame. He sees the corruption of the working class by national chauvinism, by uh, the um, increasingly racist practices of both the French state and the PCF. He sees um, a kind of precarious balance between the political, true political telos of the proletariat, as he sees it at that point, and also their corruption by the imperialist state. Yes. So he, he inhabits a position that is marginal, okay, but also purports to, in a sense, speak for what the true essence, political essence of the people is or should be. In the opening to that book, he talks about the forces that keep the people at a distance from their true concept. And such a line could be Malamé's line as well. There are a whole series of, and we'll talk about this in relation to Ronsi, a whole series of artistic and political simulacra that corrupt the people and that Malamé is endlessly trying to wrench them away from. Yes. And so Malamé, for Badiou, is a person who occupies a similar position, same set of values, who attributes the same similar role to himself with respect to a kind of political horizon of emancipation. So a similar role to the philosopher slash Maoist militant, right? Yes. Exactly. Yes. Exactly. There's a homology there with respect to their particular social position. Yes. And so that's one point of saying, okay, why should we Maoist militants look at what Malamé was doing? A, because it was pretty much very similar to what we're trying to do. Okay, we can mine the resources of his thinking at that point. But the interesting thing about what Badu does, and this, um, this kind of makes us think about the sort of ambivalence that inhabits Sartre and that inhabits the Telkelians as well, is that Badu will read Malamé as a poet of the so-called structural dialectic. Mm. Okay, so a theory of the subject is organized around a distinction between the structural dialectic and the historical and the historical dialectic. dialectic. Yes. And for a consequent Maoist militant who is interested in revolutionary change, you must be able to articulate the two. You must, most importantly, be able to pass from or through the structural dialectic to the historical dialectic yes. to give you proper historical change that will pass a certain qualitative threshold precisely to a form of communist society. This is this is entirely what the the book is is, is about, and, and, is and also in in uh, I recall that one of the other ways in which Manomé comes in at this point is is he becomes a for for Badiou a, a, an alternative kind of dialectician yes. who would think the relationship between the structural dialectic related to the I have to use this terrible neologism of Badiou's the the esplas yes. the the, the the splice of, of, of structure. Um, Which I insist is a cooking term. Well, it definitely sounds like one, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, of, 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 yeah of, of the being cooked in the structure, individuated by the kind of... Um, so it's the, gap, it's the gap between a kind of the structural dialectic, I, I suppose, a, a broadly Althusserian yes. um, 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 conception, if you've got a structure that exists to reproduce itself, right? Yes. Like a symbolic order that reproduces itself, that positions uh, 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 people relative to the rest of the, of the sort of structural totality, although we'll find out there isn't really a totality, um, uh, versus that which... Um, that which... Uh, um, hmm that which I, I'm, I'm seeking a word like, like and, and I keep stumbling across a word like transcends that dialectic, sure. which isn't exactly right, because yes. one of the things that Badiou, I mean, hence the fact that it is dialectical, I suppose one of the things that, that splits 
the structure, right? Like thinking of all his metaphors of, of session and, and so on. But it's something, I mean, one of the things that Badger is very keen to point out, again, maybe um, something that differentiates him from the Tolkellians is he'll, he'll look at it as a, um, a left-wing deviation analogous mm. to, um, in his strange theological analogy, to Gnosticism, exactly. to, um, to see... Uh, um, this this absolute and thus undialectical opposition between the structural dialectic and the historical dialectic as if you can have something like poetic language that is just that in its purity stands outside of structure and, and represents this pure yes. outside yeah. yes yes so Malame is going to be um, a, a an exemplary figure of the structural dialectic now the structural dialectic, I think it's important to point out, is not structuralism proper. No. It's a kind of one extra dialectical step beyond structuralism. That's right. And it's uh, what is uh, integral about it is that it doesn't think... Um, it is capable of thinking the real in a Lacanian sense. Yes. It recognises the real in a kind of mode of disavowal. Yes. Okay. So it can see structure and it can also see the insubstantiality of structure. Yes. It can locate the symptomatic point at which the structure itself... Um, falls apart. Yes, yes, which is also related to that which makes the constitution of structure um, possible in Indeed. the first place. And pushing a bit ahead to being an event type fix, but yes. That's absolutely yes. right. Yes. But the, the overarching telos of its recognition of the real is not let's push through the real to create true novelties. No. Okay, it's actually let's uh, enhance the structure such that the real is not encountered in the mode of a kind of revolution that really could break things apart. So again, it's a it's a prototype of what in, in of, of the role that the state plays in being an event yes. of kind of of kind of holding at bay the void that is always imminent to structure. Yes, to, yeah. And so Badu's reading of Malame is that Malame plays out those kind of moves with respect to structure. He is somebody whose lucidity takes him to the point of recognition of the real that underlies the symbolic. Yes, to use Lacanian terms. Yes, yes. But he's somebody who, in a sense, goes just to the edge of the abyss, but no further. Mm -hmm, okay. mm -hmm. And the the reading of the poems that, that draws this out is very complex, but the overarching point that Badu is trying to make to his Maoist friends, who he's talking to about this, is that this is precisely the point that we have to pass beyond. This is the threshold that we have to step beyond if we are to be consequent uh, theorists and thinkers and practitioners of revolution. Okay, so Malame is somebody who's absolutely necessary. He's a dialectician who gives us resources that need to be used. There is no absolute distinction between historical and structural dialectic. You have to pass through the structural dialectic or root the historical dialectic in the structural dialectic in order to be a proper dialectician. Mm -hmm. um, nevertheless, Malame gets us to a threshold that we must step beyond. Okay. So this is, this is, again, kind of turns Malame into um, an ambivalent figure again. He's somebody who uh, needs to be surpassed in a way um, that is at least superficially similar to the kind of moves that Sartre makes with respect to him and Telkel makes with respect to him. So he's at once a glorious ancestor again, somebody who gives us absolutely indispensable resources for thinking, but who nevertheless needs to be, um, in a sense, uh, carefully scrutinised to look at the point of precisely where he was not willing to go. Yes, yes. And this is, this is I think, uh, makes for the drama of what occurs in theory of the subject. Well, again, we see a similar drama being played out. Like uh, uh, again, it recalls, um, um, you know, it is homologous once again to um, what, despite despite Badu's um, 
but despite all that separates Baji from them, but to what's going on with the Tilkalians yes. and to what's going on with Sartre, uh, um, Afotoriore, like, like yeah. that, that there's, yeah, that, that sense of, of he is, he is a kind of heroic figure, he is indispensable for us, and yet, at least at the time of theory of the subject, yeah, and that right. there is this, there is this point uh, beyond which we, he cannot pass, and we must account for his inability to yes. pass beyond that. And indeed, this is exactly the, the framework of his reading of Lacan in the same book. Yes, Lacan yes. is somebody who gives us a thinking of the real, but there's a point in which he cannot. Uh, there's a point beyond which he will not go. Yes, Lacan is a great conservative, in the way that Malame is, in the sense, a great conservative yes. as well. Um, Malame was somebody who recognised the insubstantiality of the structure. As most definitely Lacan does. For Absolutely. Yeah, Absolutely. But well, and Lacan just does as well. Like I, I, yes. I erase that for Bergi. <laughs> yes. And, um, but it is the overarching telos within which that recognition takes place that differs. Yes. That's Are right. you using the insubstantiality of what is to, as a spur to a truly transformative praxis? Yes. Or do you have this kind of ironic uh, relationship to it? Like you understand in advance that, yes, the structure is insubstantial, but you don't use that in a truly Badgerian sense to create a truth. Yes. Um, this, I, I suppose maybe the, the, the point I'd like to go on from here before we talk about um, how Badgerian's reading of Maname changes and the position he gives in being advanced is through this figure, which um, is obviously uh, very important for Maname, uh, for Baudelaire, but also I think for Badgerian's reading as a kind of lead into our, our discussion of your, your fourth chapter in Rancière, but the figure of, of La Foule, of, of the crowd, of... Uh, Yes, yeah. the crowd. Yeah, so Malame uh, uses the word la foule, which um, in 19th century lexicon uh, is more often than not a derogatory term. Yes, it's a pejorative. Yeah. So yeah. it is describing uh, situations that occur, uh, particularly with the constitution of a modern city. Yes. Like a modern city is a very novel phenomenon. Yes. It brings together people who normally are situated, who normally would never see each other. That's right. It places them into situations of homogenization that... Um, that uh, uh, erase or, or level out certain um, qualitative differences that they have between each other. And so they're constantly encountering um, the great Baudelaire figure, for instance, yes. Flaneur in Paris, is yes. constantly encountering um, um, this sense of just being anonymous amongst a crowd of another anonymous people. Okay, so the figure of the crowd is a figure that um, encapsulates a particular 19th century experience of what it is like living with a, a shitload of other people. In a, civil, in a single space, okay. And it's typically used as well um, uh, in order to designate a group of people as kind of vulgar. Yes. As uh, uh, inherently corrupted for whatever reason by base desire, typically. Maybe um, uh, who has a... Who has a um, uh, an unfortunate tendency to be uh, de-individualized and to lose their autonomy. Absolutely. The kind of thing that leads to the, you know, the, the work and then subsequently in the early 20th century, the influence especially among fascists of someone like Gustave Le Bon. That's um, absolutely um, to, right. To Freud's, uh, which of course plays an important role in Freud's group psychology and so on. But yes. you could definitely, it's one of those, it's one of those real tropes of, of everything in the 19th century, isn't it? Like, I mean, you mentioned one which we didn't name, but what that of like, you know, the Pascalian, like the science of infinite spaces, combined with the heat death of the universe, with concerns right. about entropy, and then concern about the crowd, yes. like the terrifying mob, and and the yes. a kind of merging yes. preoccupations that merge these figures as images of disaster. You, you right? have you have basically described 
the, the the work of many nineteenth century poets. Yeah, I, I do feel I've read a lot of <laughs> a lot of stuff where, where these are the kind of things we're worrying about as nineteenth yes. century poets or novelists yes. or philosophers. Right? Or even, yeah. But the, the interesting thing about Nami is that he doesn't use the word crowd derogatory. No, he doesn't. No, this is very important. Yeah, 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 that's right. Um, he uses it first of all, it's important to see what terms he's not choosing to use. Yes. He's not choosing choosing to use the word nation. Yes. He's not choosing to use the word people. Okay. The reason for this is that Mahomet, as is quite typical of many French thinkers, takes himself as a representative of the universal. Yes. His understanding of humanity is a universal humanity, one that is not intrinsically separated into, for instance, national, cultural, um, uh, biological communities. Oh, indeed. This is this is actually very. This is something I, I wished I meant to say earlier. Actually, when you first mentioned Wagner, that when we were talking about um, uh, Malame's secular religion, I think it's it's very important to note, and 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 you're about to speak to this. The way he dis- his position um, is importantly distinguished from someone like Wagner, who also has that kind of goal, but along. Uh, nationalist and and racial and and I suppose what what you know we could quote someone like Nancy would call, call uh, mythological lines like mm. Ma- Maname is not looking for a sort of mythical fusion of the community for yes. for a, a, a communal a secular religion in that sense like he's very aware even though you know uh, uh, despite the fact that he hasn't seen you know fascist jackboots marching across Europe but he's very aware of what's wrong with that figure yes. of the secular Yes, and um, a great book that treats this in some detail is Le Coulabat's book on figures of Wagner. Ah, uh, I, haven't, I, don't, I haven't read that book, yeah. It's, and Va- uh, Le Coulabat obviously being somebody very interested in, not only in uh, Romanticism and that whole yes, trajectory, yes. but obviously in Nazism as well. And in that, and, and uh, with, you know, with his work with Nancy, that, that the um, illusion, uh, like the desire to think of community outside this mythic framework exactly. as the community of that which makes... Uh, a vision of community as as operative to, to that's absolutely right. right and Malame himself shares the same goal yes indeed he indeed. shares exactly the same goal if only for the contingent reason that he hated Wagner yes and <laughs> for the reason being that for a number of important reasons that we'll talk about in detail when we talk about Roncia who makes much of this encounter, yes 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 yeah. um, Wagner is somebody who in the twilight of the post-romantic dream has in a sense revitalized the idea of art as this um, um, artifact that constitutes a community this is what the Wagnerian opera is trying to do indeed indeed his his Siegfried's his his twilight of the gods yes. we leave it to the people to reconstitute themselves after etc yeah and Malame is totally opposed to this idea yeah. he's totally opposed to this mythology of origins he's totally opposed to the idea that there would be a community rooted in blood and soil yeah. absolutely yes and so he's looking for a figure of universal humanity, of generic humanity, as Marx and Badiou would, would say. Yes, indeed. And the term that he uses is the crowd. Yes. And one thing that makes Badiou um, alive to Malamé's work is precisely that egalitarian dimension. The crowd is, gen- the crowd is generic. The crowd, the crowd not as like, as like the horrifying mob that, you know, that we worry, you know, we, we, you know, the bourgeois or sort of even the flaneur sort of recoils from, right? Yes. Like, and, and contemplates horrifying deindividuation and so on. But a figure of uh, a figure of the of the generic in the sense of, yeah, I mean, it's it's kind of unfortunate. Um, I mean, Nina Power and other people have pointed this out in terms of um, when people read Bad Bad Year's work that that 
you know that in in English we we don't use the term generic humanity to translate um, Gaston's face as they yes. as they as they as they do in French. Like we yes. say, species being which which is is terribly unsexy and not very evocative of anything. No, it's vaguely it, Herbert Spencery and, exactly, yeah. and it evokes terrible um, um, for me at least. It evokes terrible. Um, uh, ideas about 19th century sort of scientism exactly, biologists. Exactly. No, that's why I mentioned Spencer, that kind of, yeah, like the being of the species. I mean, we know Marx like Darwin, but not even, not real Darwinism, but no. more the, but instead the kind of, the, the, the sort of social Darwinist philosophy that you get yes. on someone like Spencer, which obviously Marx is, is against in the, in the sense that he's not, he's not a neoliberal. But yeah, but so the crowd is the generic in the sense Badu talks about, I mean, everywhere, a very important, like, formalizes him being an event, but say somewhere like in the century where he talks about um, the Anabasis, Ceylon's poem Anabasis, yes. St. John Purser's poem Anabasis, and that that sense of, you know, the 20th century as an epoch of, of exile, mm-hmm. but where a figure that therefore is searching for a, a tent word, right, a way yes. people can come together across yes. lines of nation and ethnicity, etc. So this would be this would be a true universalism, not a universalism based on a minimal predicate. Uh, again, the anti-humanism, not just like oh, all human beings together, yeah. all colours, but actually something that would allow conjunctions between human beings that yes. have hitherto uh, been invisible or impossible. Yes, yeah. I think that's yeah. abs- I think that's absolutely right. And um, Roncier is alive to this, and Badiou is alive to yes. this um, uh, exemplarily, and. In his later work, so in his post-being an event work, um, we'll talk a little bit about what he says in being an event about Mallarmé. Of course, it's interestingly different and yes. perhaps contradictory to what he says in Theory of the Subject. Which yes, I did. Mallarmé. But in a in a um, circumstantial piece written in the mid '80s, but it's published in 1988, called "A French Philosopher Responds to a Polish Poet." Uh, it's it's in um, uh, the it's now published in the Little Manual of Inesthetics. Yes, right? Handbook yeah, of Inesthetics. Yeah, yeah, yeah Handbook of Inesthetics. And um, uh, the the interest of this piece is that Miłosz Cieszyl Miłosz yep. Miłosz sorry Polish poet, poet. <laughs> um, a Nobel laureate yes okay. um, I think he won the Nobel uh, laureate for poetry in the early eighties at some point I don't know the year exactly but in uh, speeches that he gave famous speeches that he gave to Harvard University in the early eighties he uh, sketched out this history of European poetry. And interestingly enough, did a kind of Sartrean reading of it, which was to say that there is this awful tendency that begins in the 19th century, which leads to politically disastrous consequences in poetry. Mm-hmm. A and reprise of the, a reprise of the, of the, of the Sartrean thesis. thesis. So what does uh, that involve? Unconscious, like, like not in, he's not aware of this. I don't think, and he wouldn't, yeah. you know, he wouldn't, uh, 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 like nobody would say that they are reprising the <laughs> <laughs> Except you and Miguel, which is one of the things I like. About it. <laughs> yes. like it's, I mean, another time, perhaps if I have you on the podcast again, we will talk about about, about the disavowal of Sartre in the late twentieth. I think our whole century. podcast yes. program should probably be devoted. To most, that. most definitely, we'll um, have a panel anyway. Yes, <laughs> yes I think a panel will probably be best. Um, uh, yes, yeah, so Miwash advances this idea, and uh, one of the examples that he gives is Malame of. Uh, uh, Modern poetry as cutting itself off from the public sphere, yes. as um, renouncing the role that it played in Romanticism, which was the constitution of a common culture and as a spiritual destiny for people, and um, shutting itself off in these hermetic enclosed domains um, and talking to like a, a small group of um, other uh, self-regarding uh, wankers, poets. elite wankers. Exactly. Yes, I would yes. say a corporation of poets, but <laughs> wankers is fine. Um, 
And so, and he finds Malame to be guilty of these sins. Yes. And the interesting thing about Badu's response and defense of Malame here is that we can also read it as what he might have said to Sartre. Yes. Or the kind of ideas that Sartre advances. Indeed, indeed. So the first thing that Miwash says is that he says, first of all, the great thing about Polish poetry, of which he is a representative, is that it speaks to the uh, concerns and experiences of, uh, for instance, the Polish people in the 20th century. Okay, so experiences of complete historical trauma mm. um, throughout this century. And the mm, poetry indeed. is precisely um, a, uh, a means of collectively working through these sorts of uh, events that have happened to the Polish This people. horrific, you know, under, under, the, under the Nazis, right? Like, like yes, under the Nazis yeah. and under the Soviets. Yes, yes, indeed. indeed. And um, it's, a, it's a fact that Milwaukee's poetry, but also the poets of other important Polish poets, um, uh, were widely read, very, very widely read within Polish society. So mm. they had a kind of connection that had been re-established through historical circumstances that um, had been lost to the French tradition. Like, Malamé is not read widely at all. No. Okay. Badiou, he sees what Miwash is doing. So he sees Miwash saying that uh, Malamé um, is talking only and referring only and addressing only a very small group of people. He sees that that's what Miwash is saying. But he is going to say that, no, Malamé and Malamé's poetry is addressed to all. Mm-hmm. It's addressed to all, but I think the all is very important and very specific here. Mm-hmm. It's addressed to all qua generic humanity. Yes. Okay. So, what does this mean? Well, generic humanity is a humanity that precisely doesn't have a preconstituted predicate that you would need to already possess in order to belong to it. By which we could recognise. So, for instance, including something like, you know, the the um, DNA of, of Homo sapiens, right? That is that, that would be an already identifiable predicate and thus is not generic, despite the fact that yes. that could seem like an obvious definition of, of humanity in general. Exactly. But it's not a generic humanity. No. And Badu is what Badu is going to do here is conjugate the, let's say, the... Um, the linguistic radicalism of Malamé's poetry, the fact that it already looks like he's writing in a foreign language in French. Yes. He's invented a new language. Yes. That precisely doesn't yet have a pre-constituted addressee. Yes. Everybody is equally confused by it. Yes. It doesn't belong to a pre-constituted community. It's stupid to say that it's only some small corporation of poets yeah. who it is addressed to. Because they don't understand it either. They don't understand it either. And this is the, this is the condition yeah. of its success within that corporation <laughs> of poets. But the point being is that it is language and it is poetry for a, a community yet to come. Yes. And not a, com- a community that has not yet actually been constituted, that doesn't exist under an already existing predicate. Of a given situation, and this is a classic, I think, um, and, and correct sort of understanding of the of, of the Marxist notion of the proletariat yes. that that the proletariat is not identical to an empirical class, right, yeah. or let alone a sort of majority, yes. um, but is in fact a, a a universal a universal to come that will traverse all sort of. Um, uh, existing differences in, in identity predicates and, 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 and so on. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And so this is what this is the way that Badiou, in a sense, defends Malamé from that charge of being um, uh, hermetic and in his hermeticism addressing a narrow public. Yeah. Actually, his hermeticism is a kind of negative way of looking at the generic nature of his poetry, which addresses, for that very reason, 
generic humanity. Yeah, it it subtracts itself from like as he said the the French language. So it becomes yes. like precisely in in being a French poet who who kind of evacuates the French the, yes. the French language and its its poetic tradition. It has the possibility of being this emblem of 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 the generic. And um, there was and and at this level, I think um, this is something maybe when we get our um, special surprise guest in some time we'll talk about some some more but it seems to me that this is also bad use um that here the, the connection between Malame and mathematics which Malame was, yes. was very interested in but also bad use um yeah, simultaneous uh, love of mathematics and, and poetry go together in that that Badiou gives mathematics similarly uh simply the status of a universal address yes. but not on the basis of course that it is empirically understood by everybody like i know some very very clever people who in the light of bad you have tried to read paul cohen's book on secular the continuum hypothesis or or the um uh or or God knows anything about category theory, and I've seen these sort of great minds break against the rock of this very difficult material. But that's not the point. Like empirical difficulty is not an index of of um, elitist exactly of our precisely precisely yes. yeah yeah. And I think that Malame shares that precise thesis. Yes, and he this is something both Badiou and Rancière will recognise in Malame. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So to, maybe to come to Rancière. Yeah. Um, um, Rancière is somebody writing in a, in a distinct situation to all of the thing, people that we've talked about before. Rancière is writing at the end of the 20th century, and he has a very specific project, which is different to the projects of Sartre, Telkel, and Badiou. Rancière has been received in the English-speaking world, at least among some quarters, as a person who has relit the flame, if you will, of the political artistic avant-garde who has again given us reasons to believe in the intrinsic progressive or revolutionary um, dimension or telos of literature or art. Not to mince words, but you think this is bollocks, don't you? Definitely. <laughs> it's definitely bollocks. So, on the contrary, what uh, Roncier could be seen to be doing is to show why that um, idea continually emerges, but why it also continually fails. Aha. Okay, that's an important point to point out. But at a general level, at a more neutral descriptive level of what Roncier is doing, he is um, providing a high-altitude survey of two centuries of literary and artistic production, which he calls the aesthetic regime of art. Yes. He inaugurated around the time of the French Revolution, okay. as all good things were. <laughs> <laughs> so true. <laughs> so um, his work on Malamé is inspired by or motivated by an attempt to replace him as faithfully as possible within the precise coordinates of his historical situation to re-examine um, uh, and to, to reprise the precise problem that he was trying to solve and in a sense not um, um, shackle him to a particular program like Telkel did or to use him as grist to a philosophical mill. Rancière is interested above all in re-establishing the uh, uh, precise historical significance of Malamé. It's a hermeneutical gesture that um, Rontier is uh, performing, one that we would talk about in terms of a philological approach yes. to yes. material. And this is how Rontier understands it as well. So when Rontier writes a book called The Politics of the Siren, mm. the politics there is referring to what he believes Malamé's exact vision of politics is. Right. So it's not in the sense of whether Chris Deva arrives with a prepackaged idea of what her politics are, 
and measures doctrinarily or dogmatically whatever she thinks Malamese was against that um, yardstick. Yes. It's just reconstituting what Malamé thought of the political situation he found himself at the time. So that's an important point to to make about Ronciere. Ronciere is not somebody who is talking about the politics of the siren as if this is the politics we need or this is what you should do no, today. No, no. It actually almost goes to the other end of like this is an this is a cool historical curiosity. Yes. That will be one that will be the extreme yes. of the other scale. I don't think that's quite true. No, no. Ronciere says that um, there is a mode of strategic invention, intervention in the present that precisely passes through the faithful reconstitution of the past. Mm-hmm. Because it, the past is, um, becomes more other to us the more we actually approach it on its own terms. And when we reintroduce it into the present, the present's horizon of possibilities expands thanks to the addition of this otherness. Mm. Right? My sense is that, that Rancière definitely, I mean, I suppose he... he in some part, despite their, their break inherits this from Althusser, is very much a sort of thinker of of the conjuncture, right? Like yeah. wants to think thinks Manomé as a sort of conjunctural figure, but also but understanding the conjuncture that produces Manomé's work also illuminates our contemporary conjuncture, yes. right? But he's but he he's too um, scrupulous in some ways to just come in with a, a broad thesis about like I, I said uh, you know I suppose which is one of the things your thesis tries to examine and even diagnose which is another uh, 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 you know sort of yet another Mal- Malame the the thinker for our time the yes. great revolution and I mean in terms of that being symptomatic of, of, of something I mean you you also uh, just in your introduction to Rancière just then you sort of you sort of implied that despite the fact that Rancière is not saying Malamé, you know, the the poet who is who is, you know, the obligatory passage point for all future politics in our time, despite the fact that he is explicitly not saying that, people are still thinking that he's saying that, yes. right, in the reception. To, exactly. You to, can and you can read um, reviews of the book, for instance, yeah. which will say Rancière seems to have a, an unquestioned faith in the political powers of literature, for yeah. instance. Okay. So you have that projection onto him of a kind of um, uh, avant-garde position that had been occupied in the past by people like Sartre, the people like um, uh, the Telkelians. Yeah. And it's as if every French thinker occupies that position. like By virtue of being a French thinker. <laughs> exactly. And we read their work in that, within that horizon. Yeah. I think that this is false with respect to Rossier. Yeah. Yeah. And I think the interesting thing about his book on Malamé is precisely to show, in a sense, um, uh, he doesn't understand it this way, but I would put it in these terms that uh, what he demonstrates is that Malamé necessarily oscillates between egalitarianism and elitism. Yes. This is what he's going to demonstrate. There's a kind of dialectic that f- flips one into the other endlessly. Okay. So Rancière's argument um, flows from his understanding of aesthetic modernity. Yes. Okay. She talks about it in various places. In various yeah, places, yeah. yeah. And I think that the best expression of it is remains a book called Mute Speech. Mm. Which you call his master... I think, I think you call it his masterpiece or something like that. I definitely, think, yeah, yeah, I definitely yeah. think this is the place to go to understand what Ronsier is mm. up to. And uh, so one of the things that happens in aesthetic modernity is that we have um, an infinite expansion of possible um, content or objects for art. Okay. There's not a circumscribed domain in which um, artistic objects, such as the adventures of a queen and a king, um, um, can be taken from. Anything is a possible object of art. Yes. Like from a table to a bit of linen to a madeleine that a, a young French man from the early 20th century eats and has a vision of their entire life 
with respect to um, it's not the adventures it could be the adventures of a an adulterous housewife living in Normandy it could be about a cathedral like in um, Victor Hugo um, it could be a urinal um, put it, into a gallery precisely it could be a urinal yeah, so yeah. we have an infinite yeah. expansion of the possible um, um, objects for art yeah okay, that's one thing and Malmé participates in this Malmé is somebody who wrote uh, poems about not just about swans and roses etc which are and Constellations of sirens, and, which exactly, yeah. which are very ancient artistic figures. Yes, okay, and they belong to a canon. But he's also somebody who writes, uh, for example, about um, uh, he will he will have a poem which will deal with a deserted room at midnight in which there is an open window and a mirror, and that's about all. Yes, yes. Um, he will write uh, poems uh, in which all that you see on stage is a bit of foam. It's, it's very interesting that the, the poems that have that subject are often have the same sort of grandeur and pathos of ones exactly. where he will use more traditional sort of um, yes. um, figures of the sublime or yes. so on, of shipwrecks and so on, that they have a similar kind of pathos in yes. there. Which is, which is, exactly. So that's one thing that we get with aesthetic modernity. Yes. We get an infinite expansion of possible objects for the other thing that we get is we get a breakdown of the rules that typically mediated between the object or the content and the form that it should take. So if you're going to tell a story about a king, you're going to have to do it probably in a tragic um, yeah. genre. Yeah. Right? You've got to do that. You can't, um, you can't mismatch the form and the content. Yeah. Okay. But in aesthetic modernity, you precisely don't have univocal rules leading from form to content or content to form. Yes. How should you treat the adventures of a adulterous housewife in Normandy? Mm. Is it a comedy? Is it a tragedy? We don't know. There and, is no rule. And we don't, even after Flaubert writes Madame Bovary, like, exactly. like you can't place it into a genre in that way, like it, it, because it kind of invents one. Like, yes. It's, it's... So artists find themselves in something of a bind here. Yeah. Okay. They find themselves in something of a bind. First of all, um, the... Uh, the domain that they can treat has expanded enormously. Okay, that's, first of all, the first thing. But they don't have any rules by which they can say that they are actually treating that infinite domain of objects artistically. What really makes, if there is no longer a distinction or a, a necessary passage between content and form, how can you ever justify saying that I am actually moving from this um, everyday object, for instance, a bit of linen, and now I have a number of poems and pieces about that invoke linen. What does it actually mean to treat that artistically? Yes. There is no rule anymore. No. So we find in um, Malamé's poetry a kind of recognition of this fact. Yes. We, on the one hand, have this, as you spoke about, this extraordinary pathos that he's able to extract from the most mundane objects. From the mirror and the linen. And exactly. The, the or starlight the and the mirror. Yes, or the foam, foam on the, the top sea. of the yeah. um, But also a recognition that the link that, or the, the poetic operation that um, gives us that transubstantiation, if you will, is intrinsically fragile, intrinsically contingent, may fail, may misfire, because there is no law anymore that is universally recognized that will tell us that yes at that moment i'm treating this thing artistically that the procedure of transubstantiation will take place okay so what malame ends up uh configuring at the level of theory if you will is what he will sort of talk about as being vanishing idealities okay so they're an ideality right so we have 
instead of just a mundane bit of foam on the sea, we see the foam on the sea as the sign of a diving siren. Okay, we have this precise transubstantiation of a mundane um, uh, object into the sign of something extraordinary. In, in, an incredibly evanescent uh, trans, transubstantiation, yes. which is, which is, I think, maybe something that links Rossier and, and, and Badiou, this, 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 this um, fragile scintillation. To use a the Badiou fragile phrase, scintillation yeah. is um, a Malamean term yeah. um, that is telling us that, yes, we can have these idealities, but the, the reason they are evanescent is because in aesthetic modernity we don't have the kind of um, stability of the platonic idol so that is establishing a relation between um, matter and form. That, that's right. Like there's nothing to go. Oh, when that figure that I saw on the on the on the in the in the phone, the figure of the siren, yes. that really was a siren. Like yes. oh, oh my god, you know, thank Aphrodite, I was visited by this figure. Precisely, of we don't know. Anymore. Which no. is precisely yeah. why in that Malamain poem that invokes the phone, the siren has always already disappeared. Yes. Okay. Yes. So yes. we never know. Yes. We never know. And this is why Badu is so um, capable of of using those figures to invoke something like the event, which is precisely a kind of um, a vanishing a vanishing term. Yes, and I, I believe you say not to go too far back to Badu because I want to talk about, we both want to talk about Rossi now, but you do in your account of Badu mention the way that for Badu, um, uh, the Badu of being an event, um, all of the Mal- the Malamean figures take place like after the events has already happened. Exactly. Right, like, yeah, yeah yes. as, in, as in they don't represent the events. They do like, not represent yeah. the event. They, yeah. they, they stage a scene from which something has vanished. Yes, 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 precisely. Just to go back to Sartre very quickly. Yes, of course. Sartre believes that this um, uh, uh, figure emerged from Malamé's childhood, in which um, his orig- the death of his mother yes. meant that he saw all objects in his world as objects from which the mother had disappeared. As vanishing, right. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. So the mother was the, vanishing, the original vanishing ideality in Malamé's own individual trajectory that kind of cast everything in a kind of equivalence such that the mother had vanished from that chair. She was not walking through those woods. She uh, was not standing at that table. This is, anyway, Sartre's um, sort of personal genesis of this um, vanishing ideology. Another entire podcast we need to do at some point is about the relationship between Sartre and psychoanalysis, which is something I know you're, you're working on at the moment. But, um, but yes, I mean, he does, have this, he does seem to have this strange mixture of kind of, of hostility and even a kind of envy and then the need to kind of reoccupy the space yes. of it and, and take from it while disavowing it. It's all very interesting. But, yes. and, uh, but putting, putting that aside, yes. so, so these, yeah, these evanescent... Um, um, uh, figures in, in Malamé's poetry, and how, how does how does Rancière um, 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 talk about these? Well, look, I think that um, what Rancière is showing that Malamé is participating in the contradictions or the knots of the aesthetic regime of art, the ascent, the problems that it encounters. Yes, right. Uh, the telos of art is precisely to extract some virtual power from the everyday, from anything, from whatsoever. Anything yeah. whatsoever. Yeah. Baudelaire says, you know. Give me your mud and I will make gold out of it. Yes, indeed. indeed. That's his famous line. And this is something that can only happen in an aesthetic regime of art in which mud could, in the first instance, be a possible object of art. Yes, Racine would not have written a tragedy about mud. Could not. Nor would Shakespeare. Could not. not. Indeed, indeed. He would get very bad reviews. (laughs) (laughs) To stop. (laughs) (laughs) Might be executed. (laughs) Someone would write a tragedy about his execution after over the mud poem. Yes, yes. Yes, Absolutely. um, okay, so so Rancière sees figures like the Vanishing Siren yeah. as Malamé's recognition of this dilemma that he finds himself in, this deadlock. Um, and for uh, 
for Ranciere, the vanishing siren, in this sense of a vanishing ideality, is what Mallarmé thinks the poem is. Okay, the poem itself is the vanishing uh, siren. Yes. Yes. Now, what are the political uh, uh, correlates to this idea uh-huh. of vanishing uh-huh. ideality? I think this is the most interesting thing that uh, Ranciere establishes and that leads to an interesting conclusion that I think... Um, undoes the way that Ronsier is typically read in the Anglophone world, in which he's meant to give us you know, uh, new uh, arguments for why we should continue to believe in the intrinsic politicity of... Uh, <laughs> of our time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Which is, I mean, he is, he is read, I mean, ironically from, from your perspective, as I think he is the thinker of a new sort of politico-aesthetic legitimation circuit. Yes. So, so artists are really into him because... Uh, for, for whatever reason, he's read as the guy who will provide that legitimation, yes. right? But you say no, you say this I say no. Nonsense. And yeah. uh, the Malame example gives us a very a palpable um, presentation of why this cannot be the case. Yeah. Okay. Why literature is, is always going to entangle itself in a kind of egalitarian elite, elite, elitism. It's always going to oscillate between the two. Okay. So Malame is, uh, has this idea that the poem is a vanishing ideality. Okay. But he also is dissatisfied with the other forms of art that he finds in his uh, time. So he thinks that the crappy theatre that is not precisely, this is a point that I want to make, not performed in front of a working class public, but informed in front of a bourgeois public. So it's not like you vulgar masses are stupid watching your crappy theatre. It's actually a bourgeois, anti-bourgeois phenomenon. <laughs> so he doesn't like um, the theatre. So he's got to establish some point of distinction between what he does as a poet and what someone like Ponzard, who's a crappy theatre dude in the mm. late 19th century, does. Okay, so he's got to establish some point of distinction. Most importantly, he has to establish a point of distinction between himself and music. Mm-hmm. Now, music is precisely the um, paradigm of vanishing idealities. Why yes. is that? Because music is never bound to a univocal signification. No, absolutely. But it's constantly telling us as if it has a significance. It, it evokes sense for these for these um, nanoseconds, right? Exactly. Like, and then it dissolves like a like a siren into the precisely. Yeah, like yeah. You listen to a symphony, and then you try and explain to me what you felt when you listened to that symphony, and it it just turns into a string of of cliches and um, um, of things you know of, of banal everyday discourse. Like or, there's no way of transmitting what you thought was a transcendent experience. No, or it seems like wildly idiosyncratic vanishing associations, right? Exactly. Like if I'm not using cliches, I can I can talk about the specific things that evoked, but it sounds like I'm recounting a dream. Like exactly. I start saying, you know, there was a cup, and yes. then there was a color, and then there was my mother, etc. Yes. And then yeah, yes. So so music at once represents the telos towards which these vanishing idealities should be moving, like art should be moving towards the model of music. Yes. But the danger in this for Malamé, and this is a danger that he thinks um, Wagner has uh, turned towards um, evil ends, if you will, Mm, um, is that it allows it to be either sort of sucked into this uh, mute idiosyncratic interiority, as as you've kind of just evoked there, or it allows, as Malamé says, the symphonic deluge to be anchored into or plugged into a kind of national mythology. Like yes, that'll be yes, the yes, yes. transcendent signifier that'll allow us to say, hey, all this powerful music is really about the power of the German people. Yes. Okay, so these, these, this radical volatility is, a, this, is the other side of the coin of this ability of music to be uh, co- co-opted precisely by someone like Wagner. 
Yes. Okay, and, and enchained in the service of a, a mythology of national origins. Mm-hmm. Okay, so Malame has to find a way of differentiating himself from these, what he calls, simulacra. Okay, simulacra. Now, what, the reason that this is going to be problematic politically, although we might say, hey, it's great, didn't he um, oppose Wagnerian um, nationalism? Yes, indeed. Yeah. Isn't that just to our modern taste? Yes, yes. Right? Or our postmodern taste. Mm. But things are a little bit more complex. Malame has to... Uh, well, what happens is that something that Badiou says in the century is that when you're moving towards the real, simulacra multiply. Yes, okay. yes, yes. Simulacra multiply all the time. And for Malame, insofar as precisely he doesn't himself have a guarantee in the literary domain of the ideality of his poetic productions, yes. he is going to be ever more defensive with respect to other forms of social practice or of artistic practice that are doing a homologously similar thing. Yes. Like theatre, like uh, music, um, like dance, and what, et cetera, and other forms of art. Even is... Does politics come under this as well? Does it this is precisely the interesting thing. So there is a Malamé piece called Conflict, uh-huh. okay, which is a really charming piece which I encourage everybody to seek out immediately and read because uh, it's at once hilarious and poignant and beautiful. And what it involves is um, a scenario of Malamy himself. He's acting as himself here. He's gone off to his um, uh, country villa, which is about an hour outside of Paris, and it actually exists, and you can go there, in order to uh, escape the hubbub of the Parisian uh, life and to do some poetry writing. Yes. Now, what happens on a particular occasion here is that uh, just outside his um, window, uh, a work group has arrived of these itinerant workers there to build a railway. Okay. And this railway actually exists. It's a true mm-hmm. kind mm-hmm. of scenario. And so this poet has his bucolic reverie interrupted <laughs> by the arrival of these workers who are loud, who are coarse, who in fact use his basement in order to store their tools um, and who totally ruin his uh, holiday. It's bucolic idyll. Yeah. Yeah. So you have an encounter between poet and worker. Mm-hmm. Now, Malame is interesting again. We know that he's not some snob. We no. know that he has an egalitarian dimension to him and he has a universalist telos to his artwork. Yes. This is his pretension. And so he's going to be particularly ambivalent with respect to these workers. Mm. Now, what happens at the end of the Sunday? So the piece goes through a number of different encounters between Malame, like failed encounters between the poet and the worker. But on Sunday evening, as the sun begins to set, right, Malamé's looking outside of his window and he hears the last sounds of the workers down on the grass um, drinking. Okay. And in a moment, they're all asleep, drunk, their faces against the grass. Okay. And Malamé sees, like he sees these workers drunk on the floor, okay, passed out after a week of work, yeah. okay, uh, framed against the backdrop of this gorgeous sunset which emerges in all of Malamé's poems it's always a sunset in Malamé's poems that's what I think Sartre criticises yeah like, he like thinks this. that it's the sunset of the working of the ruling class yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> seems a little bit <laughs> over time but yes yes like wild Marcus <laughs> um, and what he what Malamé says is he says something like and I'm paraphrasing here but close to what he says he says bread hasn't sufficed for them mm-hmm. okay, so there's this cycle of works and days, right? There's a cycle of I work and then I get paid to work again mm. and I rest 
in the in the in the in the meantime, right, at night time, okay, to replenish my forces for the next day of work. And the worker could be understood as just this figure, this proletarian figure. Even in Plato, you get this sense of a a figure who, when at, when they go home, they just rest because their only being is what they do when they work. Like yes. They can't do two things. This is the thing that Ronci, all of Ronci's political work is directed against, exactly. right? Like like the exactly. vision, the vision, the vision that the worker is like exhausted by his or her work, right? Like yes. that they're being because because they don't have like the the inner life like the other a poet or an intellectual exactly. has. Like they work as Aristotle's as fire burns. Yes. They yeah. Yes. Now Malame sees in the drunkenness of the workers a desire for something more than this cycle of this reproduction work cycle. Yes. He sees it as a sign of them moving in the direction that he himself as a poet is already on the way to moving in, in towards. Yes. Like away from the cycle, this economic cycle of reproduction, right? Some more transcendent um, telos for humanity. Okay. So he recognizes that in the workers. He sees a desire there that he himself will elect himself to come and uh, assage. Which means that the practice of the workers, the anything that the workers do in that direction, must remain at an infinite distance to his own practice. Okay, Only his poetic practice can be the true practice that will truly emancipate people. Yes. Everything else is the simulacrum. Everything else is a deficient expression of this. And the workers drunk is precisely a deficient expression of their desire for emancipation. Yes. Now, in order for Malame to set up his distance, his privilege as a poet, in order for him to propose poetry as a solution to the political ills of modernity and not something else, he actually has to maintain an infinite distance between that poetic um, practice and other poetic, uh, sorry, other practices that seem to be moving in that same direction but haven't got there yet, including political ones that they exactly. can become sort of false palliatives. I mean, what what what, this, what really interests me about what you what you said then, um, and uh, for, for various. Uh, complicated but uninteresting reasons. Like I actually like the Brontier chapter is the part of your thesis I've, I've um, uh, read the least, which is why which is why I, I'm finding what what you're saying now so so interesting for the like as as and uh, you know it's something that I haven't heard before. But I mean I can't help seeing a whole bunch of issues, political, metaphysical, and aesthetic around Plato really yes. right because when you when you talk about simulacra. Um, this translates the Greek word uh, idola is the is the plural, right? We're talking about what are we what are, what are we talking simulacra of, right? Well, in, in that's the Latin translation of of the Platonic term for you know it's it's a simulation an idol on an idol of the idea, right? And so and we're definitely talking with Malame about an idea and yes. all of this stellar sort of um, um, Platonic vocabulary that we get in Malame. And of course, one of the differences between Rancière and Badiou is on the question of Plato, where, yes. where for Rancière, um, it seems to me that um, Plato is the figure who, uh, um, who, who comes up with a myth in the, in the Republic of the different metals in, in people's thoughts. So precisely this idea that the worker is, you know, who has, who has lead or bronze in their soul, right? Like, unlike the philosopher king with the gold in his soul is, is someone like who should be content with only doing their work and nothing, yes. and nothing else. Yes. But this, this issue then 
of of simulacra c- comes up uh, at the level of, of if the I mean wine I mean again very strong platonic connections between wine and and truth like yes. the line of the symposium wine and the and the um, wine and desire wine and wine and, and and love that leads to the truth again in the symposium the line about bread evokes both you know obviously the absence of of actual bread right like mm-hmm. the side of the poor that it's a bit, and of course the the um the th- line from the gospels about about man cannot live on on bread alone yes. right like that that he needs also what the logos right yes. like like that it is yes. also the the logos that they need so so fulfilling their material needs will not never be um, enough. Will, will not surprise them. and of course this is an um ambivalent gesture i can i can imagine for Rontia because on the one hand it sort of recapitulates a certain you could argue a certain platonic elitism with regards to yes. all is simulacra except yes. for the truth but on the other hand um i think and maybe maybe especially for for Badiou, who is more who is more sympathetic to, to plato and, and and will actually read a radical egalitarianism into plato as opposed to this elitism around the, uh, the myth of the metals and so on for for Badiou, there's this um, there's this there's this question of, of no emancipation is tied to the to the real and is tied to a kind of um, uh, overcoming of of simulacra and yes. yeah it's yes. it's interesting do you see how do you see the the sort of Badiou Rodsia relation coming sure. out in the uh, over Malame how do you how do you sure think? look I think that the Malame point or the the point that Rodsia makes about Malame is that you have to maintain the barriers all the more so when everything is simulacra, when precisely right. there is no uh, univocal rule that will be able to tell us, yes, the poet is truly, truly does have the privileged task that he is according to himself. And this is the situation of, of everyone within the aesthetic regime, right? Exactly. Like, I mean, this is why the, the joke, to make a crass pop culture reference, but like the joke from the TV show 30 Rock, where one of the characters says, we know what art is, artist pictures of horses yes. like the reason that joke functions is precisely we live in it is precisely what that, that that is not something that anyone could take seriously no. anymore yeah that's right and so Malame himself must affect or or take up an elitist posture because he is an egalitarian yes yeah how fascinating yeah exactly and so you you have um you you are going to get into a situation structurally speaking where uh, emancipation is endlessly deferred, where this distance between uh, the people and the poet will be infinite. Okay, in a sense, it cannot be traversed structurally. Okay, so I, this is the point at which Ronsier's book ends. It ends on precisely this infinite distance between um, the utopian impulse of Malamé's work and the way that that utopian impulse has to remain a horizon because it's undercut by Malamé's necess- necessary recourse to some point of distinction between his own privileged poetic um, or allegedly privileged poetic practice and other practices that he sees as being equivalent in terms of where they're heading but necessarily deficient with respect to his privileged poetic um, religion. Mm-hmm. And it, 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 it would seem, I don't know whether that's a, a strange, that one of the things that Badiou and Montier agree about despite all the differences, unlike um, any contradistinctions of the Telkalians, uh, for instance, is is the fact that for both of them, poetry cannot be politics. Like art cannot be politics. There yes. cannot be a sort of exemplary political art that will do the work of no. politics in itself. Yes. Um, Robert, perhaps that is, it's been a long conversation, a good place to take a break. And yes. after our break, um, we will come back with a, a, a special guest. Um, so let's, um, 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 thank you. Uh, please come back after the break. 
Welcome back, uh, everyone. I am continuing uh, my conversation with Dr. Robert Boncardo. We've just had a, uh, a, a long conversation about uh, Robert's um, forthcoming book, Political Appropriations of Malame, uh, in the works of uh, Sartre, Telkel, Badiou and Roncia. I'm now um, joined as, as well as by Robert, by um, Christian Gelder, who is a uh, master's candidate at the University of New South Wales. Um, Christian uh, wrote a remarkable master's thesis on Mersu and, and Malome on, on uh, what's the title, Christian? The uh, Honours thesis. Oh, pardon. Oh, uh, that's okay. Um, it was called uh, Between the Poem and the Mathem, Mysu and Malome. And your master's thesis has a similar, like, has similar concerns, and, and, and what is its title, Chris? It does. It's called um, uh, Malame and Mathematics on Nothing in the Infinite. Okay. So um, the reason I've, I've brought uh, Christian uh, along to the podcast is, is, is first of all, because uh, Christian is obviously a, a scholar of Malame and philosophy in his own right, but also because I wanted to ask Robert about his current and future projects, and uh, Robert and Christian are comrades in arms but they're also um um uh, i wouldn't as, go that far. <laughs> doesn't doesn't mean they like each other but um uh, robert robert and, and christian are also um collaborating on a collection of interviews with uh contemporary french thinkers on malame's work so robert and, and christian would you, you tell me a, a little bit about about this new uh, very exciting project that you're both working on oh um well uh um thank you brian most welcome. Before. Welcome, and, Christian. And as, as well. Um, uh, basically, I, th I think it was conceived um, sort of on a whim in, in many senses. Um, but uh, Rob and I um, shared the same concerns, um, mostly on the, the way in which Malame was interpre interpreted and appropriated in the 20th century um, by continental philosophers um, in particular. And... Uh, um, Certainly, I think we're both interested in, in, in the sort of more recent uh, uh, readings that come from uh, Alain Badiou, Canton Maisu, Jean-Claude Milner, uh, Jacques Rentier, um, and uh, um, the way in which they've been received in the Anglophone world. Uh, and so uh, we thought it would be uh, a good idea to, instead of um, uh, debating and going over and, and going over again uh, uh, what they said in the text only to find out that we don't know um, <laughs> to actually ask them <laughs> and see if they could help us uh, uh, make sense of, of what was going on so I think that's the, the broad uh, uh, scope of the, the, the book of interviews that we're doing is um, what is going on when you're reading Malame and, and why are you reading Malame at this particular point? A fascinating question and a brilliant cutting of the Gordian knot. Why, why not just ask these guys what they actually think sure. about this? Um, I, I actually, I, I think I'd like to start by asking you about Jean-Claude Milner. I mean, at the, at the beginning of the podcast, I asked Robert to say a few things about, about Malame in general, but I think, I, I mean, Milner is one of these very um, important uh, uh, French figures, a, for, a former Maoist and, and a, a Lacanian, a, a linguist. Um, uh, uh, Giorgio Agamben is, is the impression that, that Agamben is, is uh, sorry, that uh, Milner is probably the greatest linguist of, of the 20th mm. century, but really, really not known in the Anglophone world, as far as I know, only one of his many books has been translated into one English. One and a half. And so there's For the Love of Language and... And The Debate with Badiou. Ah, of course. And, yeah. and of course, uh, um, um, Badiou's con controversies with, with uh, Milner, um, which talks about um, that both the two of them both being products of the, of the red years and, exactly, and Badiou yeah. being the most... Um, 
uh, uh, read um, French authoring languages other than French, whereas Milner is, is again hardly hardly known mm. outside of France. So, can you tell me a, a little bit about this this really intriguing and um, uh, I, I, I think curious figure, Jean, Jean-Claude Milner, Chris? Sure, yeah, about? he is uh, he is intriguing and 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 very curious. Um, he sort of he starts off his career as a, a hardcore. Lacanian, um, he meets uh, Jacqueline Miller at the ENS, uh, who convinces him to come along to uh, Lacan's seminars, and he speaks very favorably about that. But what's interesting about him is that his early career was punctuated by a stint at MIT, yes. um, in, in which he um, he re- recounts reading Chomsky uh, on a plane, and, and like <laughs> he's not sure if he's just so high up in the air that he's like delusional, but he's like, this is the best thing I've I've ever read, and it's actually um, um, similar to what's going on in in French structuralism at the time. He's of course engaged with uh, Cahiers Paul Lamelise, um, the the uh, radical Lacanian Althusserian journal uh, at the time, and so he, he translates Chomsky into French in 1972. Uh, yeah, into French in 1972, um, and uh, that that's sort of uh, what occupies him for the first 15 years of his career is uh, rereading uh, Lacan. Uh, rereading uh, certain structuralist uh, motifs in light of American linguistics and at the same time providing a critique of, of um, uh, French structuralism as well as American linguistics. So he's, he's sort of intervening in both fields uh, at once and, and in these early books there are mentions of, of Malamé. There is a particularly moving reading of the coup d'etat in, uh, in Le Nom Saint-Distinct which is the, um, a politicised uh, version or politicized account of um, the only book that has been translated into English, as you mentioned, Brian, uh, for the love of language. Uh, but his career takes a, a wayward turn uh, mm. in the in the early nineties, um, uh, where he's publishing very at the time he's he's publishing political works, but not that's not his main concern. In in some in some senses, he's like the Telkelians in that he sees a. Uh, a homology between politics and language, political subjectivity and linguistic subjectivity. Yes. That's not to say that this goes in the 90s work, but um, for example, uh, the, the, this turn is inaugurated with a book called Consta, which is, mm. is released in, in 1992. And uh, the first line of that book um, signifies, to my mind, a stylistic shift in his work. It opens with the line, uh, I cannot convince myself that nothing took place in Moscow in 1991. And to me, that's like a, a, an incredibly melancholy way to start a book on what is essentially like a, um, a critique of the way that um, French philosophers have dealt with the question of politics. Like, um, there's not much mention of, of the, the, what he calls polemically the fall of the statues in Berlin, except for in this, this introduction. Um, so... You know, there's a there's a marked shift in 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 his work, and Constar is part of a trilogy, and the final book of um, that trilogy is called Malamé Tumbo, and it's a scathing critique of uh, what he calls the strict Malameans. And he says, you know, there always comes a time when one is tempted to say nothing takes place. Uh, that moment is Malamean, mm-hmm. or that is a Malamean moment. Um, and so uh, uh, Milner, uh, he, is, he isn't particularly known in the, in the English-speaking world, but his, his work, not just on Malamé, but on uh, Lacan, on language, on politics, is absolutely integral to my mind to understanding the, the developments that 
Rob uh, was talking about before. Mm. And so when he says at the opening of Constar, I cannot convince myself that nothing took place. So what he's saying there is that the fall of the Berlin Wall, the breakup of the Soviet states, is a real blow, if you will, to what he calls the political vision of the world, mm. which is something he believes to be shared by most French thinkers. Mm. So Badiou at that point, in his book of an obscure disaster, was treated yes. the same events, will prosecute the argument that uh, the downfall of the Soviet states doesn't attain or... or uh, have an impact upon the integrity of the communist ideal, the communist hypothesis. Yes. Okay, we can maintain that, um, irrespective of these contingent historical events. And of course, the downfall of the Soviet states, precisely the downfall of the state, which itself is a, by definition, a um, a corruption of the communist idea. Yes. So when Milner says that I cannot convince myself that nothing took place, he's saying no. Actually, a new kind of historical paradigm has been. Uh, has begun, or rather that um, the political vision of the world that sees proletarian revolution, sees communism as a historical horizon, is over, okay, or has been unknotted. Its integrity has been unknotted. And so when he uh, uses the syntagm, nothing has taken place. Which is from Malamé. Exactly. Precisely from Malamé. Christian evoked these so-called strict Malamés. Yes. So what does that mean in this case? It means something like the kind of posture that Badiou is able to take, <coughs> which is to say that, yes, nothing is taking place, and the idea, in a sense, the capital I of communism, remains unscathed, uncorrupted, um, above, if you will, the uh, infinite scattering of contingent anonymous events in the world, here below. And this figure, this uh, quasi-platonic figure of a split between worlds, is the same split that Malamé evokes in the coup de day, where you yes. have the, uh, the sum anonymous splashing down below, except perhaps above a constellation. Yes. And if Badiou is a Malamé here in Milner's terms, and it's a derogatory term, mm -hmm. it's, a, it's a polemical term that is designating what is wrong with Badiou, it's because he thinks he can maintain the integrity of the communist idea outside of, if you will, these historical circumstances. So the shift that Christian uh, is talking about here um, is, a, is a sign of Milner's breaking with uh, political commonplaces shared by the French left, exemplarily by Badiou, and that he understands to be, in some perverse sense, uh, complicit with yeah. a Malamean nihilism. And this is um, one of the... When we interviewed uh, Milner, of course, we asked him about this, and he has a really beautiful line, whether or not it's agreeable is, is another question. Personally, I don't think it is, but... What he says is that um, throughout the uh, 70s and the 80s, um, particularly with um, um, the rise of Mitterrand and, and, and so on, he said people looked to Malamé to restore their proper illusions. So they could get from Malamé what they wanted. And the minute that Malamé failed them, they turned to metaphysics or they turned to prose or they turned to something else. But Malamé was, was for them someone they could take something from and re retain it, uh, you know, retain it. And what he does in Malamé Otumbo is he, he provides a reading of one of Malamé's sonnets, the Sonnet of the Swan, uh, in, in which uh, um, it begins with this line that, that the, the vibrant, the virginal and the beautiful today, and which is kind of the swan dreaming and, and, uh, of, the, of a revolutionary promise. And it ends with, with the swan realizing that it's trapped in a lake and it's actually mm -hmm. tied and, and, and uh, held down uh, uh, by the, to the lake. And uh, uh, 
the last line is, or, or the second last line is something like, the swan is immobilized. Yeah. So, so nothing actually takes place in the poem. And Milner has this line in the interview where he said, what I wanted to do is, I, I owed it to Malame to restore the truth to him. Mm-hmm. So, and Malame, I'm, I'm not saying anything different from what Malame said. I'm just restoring the truth. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's quite a powerful vision yes. in, in many senses. So the reading of the poem uh, that uh, Milner provides, the song of the aujourd'hui, is um, specifically directed against those who would mobilize Malame for progressive revolutionary political ends. Yes. Who would see him as precisely a comrade. So the vision that emerges from this poem is initially you have this dream of the swan who thinks that, yes, the day of liberation has arrived. And then through the poem, as it, as it goes from, um, to its tercets, you move through different stages of its recognition of its entrapment within the ice, such that the only movement that happens in the poem is the decision to immobilize oneself. Mm-hmm. Okay. And to not even consider the exile in a uh, Baudelairean vein as uh, some kind of transcendence within imminence. The poem ends by saying the useless exile of the swan. Mm. So we have a progressive negation by Malamé of all of the figures, A, of Hugolian um, pro- progress and positivity with respect to historical time, B, with uh, um, uh, Baudelaire's melancholy for the failure of that dream, and then finally Malamé's position proper, which is that there's no reason in being melancholic for a dream that never could possibly <laughs> exist in the first place. The best you can possibly do is immobilize yourself. Mm. Milner says, this is Malamé's vision. I'm just telling you what it is. And everybody, including Badu, have been disastrously mistaken with respect to their mobilization of Malamé. Okay, I have two questions about this. I mean, this is so fascinating given our, our, the previous discussion that I had with Robert. And so... Of, of the of the many interesting things here that I'd like you to ask about, I mean, on the on the first place, in the first place, there's the fact that um, Milner comes out of such a, a similar milieu to to Badiou. Mm-hmm. We we mentioned the the Cahier-Pulanalisa, mm-hmm. um, this this um, Althusserian Lacanian Marxist journal, extraordinary, extraordinary. Uh, it's it's online in its entirety in French, as I recall, and there there are two sort of extraordinary. Uh, volumes put out in in English by Knox Peden and Peter Hallwood called Concept and Form that that sort of print some of the text from that and also in the sec and and in the second volume kind of bring the protagonist like interview the protagonist about kind of Caipulana mm. Lisa like like um, thirty years later mm. or something like that. Great interview with Milner in there as well. There's a particular yeah, yeah. that's that's right, including including Jean Claude Milner and yet Milner's political position is so um, at odds with someone like Badiou and this is very very clearly comes out in the, con- in the controversy. And yet, what makes this interesting is, I, I, well, there are a number of things that make Milner's political position interesting, but one of the, the, the things that I, I think makes the relationship between Badiou and Milner so interesting is the way they share so many of the same reference points, not just mm. the same history, such that mm. Milner would be, a, Badiou would be a faithful subject and Milner would be a, a, a renegade, but it's the fact that unlike some of these other opportunistic figures, that are, like Milner is still, you know, it's still... The, the Lacan, it's at Lacan as a, as, a, as a central figure. It's still Galilean science, mm. a Quarian interpretation of the history and philosophy of science, the importance of, of the letter. And yet, um, and yet we have this, this radical divergence of political views. And given the discussion that I had j- just had with, with Robert, like these um, political views, like Malamé as a battleground for, from these political positions. Mm. So I suppose I want to ask you, can you, can you, and I address this to both of you, can you tell me a bit about 
uh, Milner's political vision, as as has been expressed in his books of the sort of late nineties and, and early uh, sort of the two thousands. Um, uh, can we say a bit about that first? And second, why you think that Milner feels the need to perhaps prosecute this political argument that he's mm. having with his old comrades? Um, uh, in the field of Malamé studies. I mean, it's very interesting that even Milner, who who kind of rejects the whole comrade Malamé thesis as emphatically as possibly, is and, and would diagnose it in a much more sort of demystifying way than Robert would say. This is this is purely a sort of illusion of the youth of a, a of a generation, you know, in a moment of silliness, right? But he's still quite recently. Um, having to prosecute this argument at the level of Malamé study. So first question, Milner's politics, what's the deal? And <laughs> second, second question, why does he still feel the need to, to, to argue about, uh, about Malamé? Yeah. Sure, yeah. Look, I wish I could answer either of those questions. <laughs> I have no idea. But I think that, well, his political position, to my mind, you can trace a fairly coherent trajectory, which begins with Constein. In Constein, what he wants to do and what the main thrust of the book is about is denotting the relationship between politics and the idea and what he calls this uh, as well as the political vision of the world is um, a politics of the maximum and so he says that um, for for uh, French uh, political theory um, or, or political philosophy of which he he does cite that Jew explicitly he says um, Change is the key category um, for this uh, uh, particular genre of, of thought, and uh, change always happens at its most maximal point. Um, so, for 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 the the political vision of the world, um, the most uh, grand thought, precisely at the level of idea, must execute the most radical change at, at the at the nature of the the imminence of the world. And uh, Milner ends the book, Consta, uh, uh, by saying this may be the case, but it doesn't have to be so. It's one very specific uh, mode of thinking politics. Yeah. Um, and so we should, like it says, it's, it's a historical analysis in, in some senses. He begins with the, the Greeks, actually. Um, but he says, uh, um, yes, thought and action are linked in some senses, but they don't have to be linked to their maximal point. And so instead, his political position is precisely the opposite. He, said, mm -hmm. he says, I admit a minimalism. I admit a minimalist uh, political position, which, uh, as, as he defines it, is um, a way of treating the multiplicity of bodies that are, that are imminent to the world. Um, I have to admit that I, I've, I've, it's been hard for me to grapple with, with what, what he's saying here, so I'm not going to be able to, to uh, uh, say or rehearse his arguments in their sophistication, but essentially he's, he derives from Lacan um, the primacy of speech. Yes. And he says that when, when there is um, one speaking being, there is by the nature of uh, a being speaking, there is another speaking being, and because there is an other, there is a multiplicity. Now, we can't all speak at once. He says, like, we'd just be shouting all over each other. Like, it, that would be horrible. So what happens is we necessarily have to take turns speaking. So, you know, you two are silent now. I'm banging on. We're in a political relationship. No yeah. thanks. The problem is, is that the specifically modern way of silencing an other for Milner, specifically modern, is genocide. 
And so what his, his political position is, is that um, whereas someone like uh, Badiou, for, for instance, will see the, um, the, the main historical political events of the 20th century as um, uh, uh, the October Revolution and May 68, for him, we have to replace that, uh, that lineage with the moments at which large multitudes of people have been silenced. So specifically the Holocaust uh, and instances surrounding that. But for him, uh, politics um, revolves around when you try and silence the other. Um, and, and that's sort of the, the premise from which he begins his, his political yeah, thought. And I think that the political vision of the world as he sketches it out is a powerful description, uh, I think, that he gives of a position yeah. like that of Badiou. And even with respect to uh, what we see in uh, 20th century Malame scholarship, uh, let's take the case of the Telkelians. Mm. The Telkelians are measuring Malame against a particular yardstick. They're seeing him's work is positioned um, at one end or of the uh, a yardstick going between a sort of minimalist and maximalist position. Like he can be um, critiqued for not having gone far enough in the direction of a revolutionary break, at which precisely thought and action meet their point of maximality. Okay. And you can see that that is the force field in which he is caught when he is being read by people like Telkel. Yes. And even with respect to Badiou, in theory of the subject, where mm. the figure of the structural dialectic, and Malame is a figure of the structural dialectic, is a figure who has not gone far enough. But precisely the far enough is within a horizon that is this political vision of the world, as Milner describes it, and which, is, which enables you to, in a sense, uh, understand the entirety of reality as more or less revolutionary as more or less progressive, more or less reactionary, and everything is measured against that particular yardstick, whose maximal point is precisely revolution. Yes. Um, and what Milner is doing, and as Christian has just explained, is entirely reorienting our understanding of the way the world is structured politically. So for a left-wing thinker, for a person within the political vision of the world, the main events are, as Christian has said, October um, 1917 and May 68 yeah because this is the point at which we see some kind of maximal uh, vision of politics yeah. and the intervening periods are precisely just a waning or a retreat yes. of that movement that would hopefully someday lead us back to the maximal or something irrelevant to politics like Badiou would say this even if it and, and Badiou never tries to undermine the horror of this but but even if it you know genocide etc is of is of significance in the sense that it's it's horrifying etc but not of political significance for Badiou yeah. Minna's position is antithetical to this yes term. yeah so the holocaust exactly the, sorry sorry to no, but, but, but Milner um, um, Milner always invokes Thucydides uh -huh. and, and this is precisely like the point at which Badiou and Milner diverge because um, Thucydides accuses Plato of not treating the, uh, the, um, the, the plague as a, a, a political um, event. event. Yes. Exactly. Um, and uh, um, Milner thinks, no, it is. Um, and be precisely because it causes death. But for Badiou, philosophy is indifferent to this. You can condemn it on a moral level, but... Ultimately, it's indifferent to, yes. to, to what happens. Yeah. Yes, he, but you would quote Spinoza, you know, the, the free man thinks of nothing exactly. less than death. Yes. And if 
you are to understand something like fascism. Yes. And then out of fascism, uh, so there's got to be some positing of a transitivity between fascism and the Holocaust. Yes. Within the political vision of the world, you'd say at root it is a reaction to the Bolshevik Revolution. Again, what Badgy would say. Exactly. Yes. So yes. you have at the beginning of your account of all of the political phenomena of modernity, you have some kind of vision of revolution, which is a point at which thought and action reach their maximum point. For Milner, you have to begin with something like the Holocaust, the destruction of the European Jewry, and understand the topology of European society from that as your starting point. And this will lead him into a whole argument about uh, different forms of totality, totalization that he takes from Lacan, and sees that as some sense the, the root problem around which political uh, life in, uh, turns, and precisely not around the uh, primacy of events like uh, October 1917 or May 68th. Mm. I, feel, I mean, I, I want to come back to the question of, of why he fights this, this out on the battleground of Malamé, but before I do, I mean, there's, I just, I'm, I'm aware that neither of you, and, and I, I, I think um, this is my own position, are, are convinced by Milner's political position. And yet, I mean, I suppose I, I want to ask this, this question in the form of a, a, a kind of chiasm, that on the one hand, it's, it, it's like, um, given what what is it about Milner's position, given that one that given that you may, for instance, disagree with it, that makes it nonetheless compelling? But also conversely, given given that it is so compelling, what is it what is it that makes us unable to accept it? Well, I think um, I just uh, um, really uh, uh, every true thinker can't help but make you their disciple, even if it's for a second. That's very true. And I think that's uh, absolutely correct. Yeah, I, I think that when you read Milner, the experience is so delirium inducing that you can't help but but agree with him even if it's for a moment and yes. even if it contradicts all the assumptions and presuppositions that you bring to bear um, because he is a real thinker he is a real thing, thinker and not a, and not um, and not some sort of uh, like hack right like like putting that sort of right-wing uh, bromance yeah. and so yeah. absolutely yeah absolutely in terms of the uh the the um my particular interest in in milner's reading of malamay that the political work, in some senses, is secondary. What, what, I, what I'm most interested in is the um, way in which he uh, knots together Malamé once more and uh, his thesis on uh, Galileanism, yes. um, which, which uh, we can talk about, uh, uh, yeah, if, if you like. Oh, of course, of course. I mean, this is, I mean, I mentioned, I mentioned Quare uh, 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 before, and this mm. is something, this is something that... Um, uh, plays as, as far as I know a really a really central uh, role in in um, Milner's book on Lacan Le, Le Verclair, mm. um where it's uh, this this argument around um, the the status of the letter in mathematics mm. as something like a I'm using a term from a figure I, I know you wanted to interview for, for, the, for this book from Quentin Mersu, who we also haven't discussed. Who also, of course, has a book on Malamé called The Number of the Siren. But but my 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 minimal understanding of it is that is that for um, Milner the the letter in the sense of like as used in the formula of uh, the formulae of the natural sciences is something like although although 
Messi will make a slight distinction here, but but what Messi would call the meaningless sign, right? Like so, a, 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 a sign sub subtracted from a sort of symbolic network in in sense as a as a condition of the possibility for modern sciences. Mm. This is this is the Galilean mathematization yeah. of the world, which Absolutely. is at the heart of. Which is really a literalization. It's exactly it's a it's a literalization as in in the in the huh, literal sense of becoming <laughs> yeah. becoming letter, right? Yeah. That it is it is that that. Sense. I mean, I, I, I find this, this is, I think, you know, given this is a, a podcast in English, like really, it was really striking to me. And I, I imagine to both of you as, a, as an Anglophone, that, that if you know anything about the history of science in the English speaking world, it tends to be very, this uh, Whig history of science, which, which is largely focused on empiricism, right? That what happens is once upon a time, we all read Aristotle and the Bible. And then in the 17th century, some dudes get together and go, hey, maybe we could like look at stuff. In yeah. Right? Whereas, which, which of course is nonsense, but, but also from the Quadrennian perspective, which I imagine is Milner's perspective, it's the argument that, that no, like people have been looking at stuff forever. Aristotle's mm. fucking going around like looking at things, mm. right? It's, it's, they can't help but look. Of course, exactly. Yeah. How can you? How can you? How can you not? Like observations, even even systematic observations. You know, alchemists make systematic observations. Mm. No, no, no. What happens in seventeenth century science is it's that Cartesian Galilean break where the real becomes something that can be inscribed in mm. mathematical in mathematical terms without a reliance. I mean, bring us back, I suppose, to Malame on on sense. But yeah, Christian, would you like to to say some more uh, about? Yeah, that? I, I, I mean, yeah. I, I think um, um, yeah. I, I, I think that's absolutely true, and and one of the things that he'll bring to bear on his reading of Malamate is the um, the passage from the ancient conception of phusis yes. to the post-Galilean conception of nature. Yes, and what he 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 identifies um, following uh, Coye and, and Kojev as well, and also uh, Lacan uh, too, is that uh, um, for the ancients, mathematics um, is used to determine what is uh, eternal. So God motion, uh, the way in which um, uh, the planets revolve around each other, etc, etc. Um, and the discipline that gives you the greatest um, uh, amount of precision to describe the empirical world is philology. So letters. Yes, yes. Um, but what happens with Galileo is Galileo, of course, wants to mathematize nature. Yes. And this nature is written uh, uh, um, uh, through a book. So what Galileo does is he actually creates a redistribution of the sensible for the subject. So no longer are we, um, um, no longer do, and this will become important for his reading of Malame, no longer do we look up to, to, the, to the stars and see a limit for what we can see, precisely because mathematics now describes nature, we can chart things that are not visible with the, to the gaze and see them for the first time. So for example, the ancients are, um, are deducing um, laws, um, uh, eternal laws about motion from constellations. But now um, we can map stars that are not visible to the eye. And for the first time, they become visible thanks to mathematics. As a result of that map. Exactly. Yeah. You couldn't get more antithetical for the, from the Greek conception as far as like, for instance, you know, um, Plato and Aristotle will, will correlate mathematics with, uh, you know, the various words for knowledge in Greek with what they call episteme, where episteme comes from the word histeme, which means to stand, as in, as in, in the sense of, of to stand still, mm. right? And because physis means 
um, uh, comes from a, a root meaning growth and change. Thesis is precisely that which does not lend itself to, uh, especially for the Aristotelian tradition, to a proper mathematical mapping. The things that are more like mathematics are the, again, we're talking Aristotle, not Plato. Plato is different, but um, are the, the things of the supralunary world, mm. which have these perfect motions, like, like yeah, the, the circles yeah, and the spheres yeah, 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 yeah. And, and so on. But, but that's why they're useless for dealing with the sublunary world, the world under the moon, which is that of generation, corruption, and change. And mm. so on. Whereas was, what, what you're saying is right, Galileo's literalization completely um, reverses it. And, and yeah. well, no, yeah, more than reverses it, fucks is the right word. Like, yeah, completely sure. um, yes. And so Milner will ask, of, he'll say, um, if, if He'll say, if constellations are no longer real, why do poets in the 19th century once more resume writing about them? And he has a beautiful line in, 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 this, in this piece called, it's called La Constellation Revelatrice, mm. which um, if I can, um, you know, plug Rob and I, we, we've, just, <laughs> uh, we've just translated uh, um, this this particular piece. Of course, where's it appearing? Just, just for you know, while we're plugging. Oh yeah, it... sure, cha-ching. <laughs> coming out in uh, in uh, um, S, um, uh, which is a Lacanian uh, journal. Ah, ah, the journal which has a, a, the third issue of which is called Miller the Obscure. Exactly, the first, exactly, yes, 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 yes. yeah, yeah. And um, uh, he, uh, um, uh, Milner says quite, quite beautifully. I think um, he says uh, constellations. The reason why poets start writing about constellations in the 19th century is that while they don't exist, nevertheless they shine. And so, hmm. um, uh, uh, at the same time, uh, poets refuse the ancient conception of uh, Fusus, but they also, he says, say no, quote unquote, to post-Galilean nature. And instead, uh, what they do when they invoke things, as Mallarmé does, like constellations, number, etc., they ask you to remember numbers genealogy and always situate the ancient within the modern and the modern within the ancient. So it's quite a powerful thesis, I think, mm -hmm. in, in many senses. Robert, I'd like, to, I'd like you to come in on this because I recall something we didn't mention, but in your, in your Sartre chapter, you talk about Sartre's reading of, of Mallarmé and science. And um, if I remember correctly, Sartre... Um, uh, as you describe him, also also positions Malame as someone who who has this uh, makes this gesture of refusal of a of a no to modern science. Yes. Yeah. One of the interesting things that Milner says in the interview that we did with him, yeah, was that, um, and I kind of put the, this question to him and inspired by. We him. wrong. <laughs> <laughs> Already the the, the, the fissure <laughs> emerges. <laughs> <laughs> French won't get you out of this one, my friend. <laughs> so the, the, the question that Christian and I wrote together and put to Milner together dealt with um, the political ramifications of uh, modern science. Um, yes. Understood within um, 19th century French letters. Yes. And what Milner said was interesting. He said it took people and people like Mallarmé and French people in the 19th century, in 20th century, a long time to realise that there was no link between science and politics. Because precisely, um, as Sartre is a pains to point out, many uh, French poets, people like Le Comte de Lille and Mallarmé himself to a degree, see uh, the post-Galilean scientific universe as one which has destroyed God, yes. but also destroyed man. Yes. Destroyed any kind of overarching teleology to the universe. Yes. However that might be construed. Yes. 
Um, and so uh, Mame is definitely someone who possibly in the beginning of his career, this is the one that we spoke about Sartre being particularly interested in when he's polemicizing against uh, Mame. Indeed, indeed. Um, uses uh, modern science, both uh, physics and biology, uh, as grist to his nihilist mill, mm-hmm. if you will. More heat death of the universe, etc. Exactly. Et et uh, there are quite seriously, not in Malame, but in Le Comte de Lille, who was mm. um, for a time Malame's master. Uh, there are poems in which you have the collision of planets. Mm. Yes. Um, you have visions of people um, floating off into the universe as infinite particles of dust. And these are endlessly replayed, these scenarios which are inspired by the, um, a certain interpretation of physics, but one which has been placed within a political or ethical register with respect to how do we view people's actions, their motives, uh, their overarching um, vision of their lives. Milner's uh, thesis, and I think it applies to the mature Malamé, the Malamé of the coup de day, for instance, mm-hmm. is in some sense saying like there is a interestingly interesting reinscription of certain more Pythagorean or ancient motifs of the of um, ideas of the universe as a book, for instance. This yes. is something that's particularly important in Malame, which it doesn't make any sense, um, which makes which is precisely the Pythagorean kind of Liber Mundi, not the post Galilean book of nature written in mathematical symbols. No, that's right. As in and, and so oh sorry, yeah, yeah. I, I think it's also in, in, in important to to um, remember that um, uh, the link between, say, uh, number and music in Malamé, for uh-huh, example, uh-huh. with the, the scintillations of the scepter, the seven stars at the end. Of course, sept is also a musical term uh, for the seventh note uh, uh, of an octave. And that's precisely like that's pure Pythagoreanism that Malamé yes. is invoking at this particular point. It, it does seem like like you've... you've at this point, what's happened is so when you mentioned the, the Liber Mundi, you know, I think of as I was, uh, I, I think principally of kind of Renaissance uh, treatises, like the kind of thing you get um, at the beginning. Foucault's talking about at the beginning of, of, of the order of things, of mm. the prose of the world, right? Mm. And all of this is is um, predicated on a pre-Galilean notion that there's a kind of suture between meaning mm. and and the real and and the truth, which which comes undone after mm. the Galilean, or although. It seems to me from what you both just said that it's like for, for Malamy, there can be such a link once again between between sort of the real and sense. It's just that it's subject to to Lassard. Uh, uh, it's, it's subject to chance. It's subject to um, 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 to you know the the dice throw and, and so on. Look, yeah. if if at the end of Ancuda Day, yeah, it's it's always uh, you know Malamy qualifies the emergence of the constellation. Yes, he, exactly. He says, yeah. you know, nothing will have taken place but the place. So we have the infinite um, chain of, of events that modern uh, Newtonian um, celestial mechanics establishes in the deterministic framework. You just have an infinite chain of events, however you conceive of it. Um, nothing takes place but the place, except perhaps the constellation. Yes, yes. And that is uh, the fragile scintillation, yes. whereby the old illusions, if you will, the old vision of the universe in either Pythagorean or Renaissance vision of the universe for a moment scintillates. Mm. Yes. We see it for a moment, but yes. precisely we can only have it as a momentary phenomenon because we know ourselves to be within a broader horizon, which is in that horizon 
post Galilean. I said it is it is vanishing. You can you can see a siren in the foam. You can see you can see a star in the mirror. But what you can't do is you know um, as they would in I, I I don't know sort of Renaissance magic is arrange a whole kind of medical practice around like like this you know that that like let's treat. Um, someone with anemia with um, with iron because um, we associate anemia for various complex reasons to do with the reading of the Book of the World with an absence of, of like the constellation Mars in astrological and mm. astrological symbols. Mm. Like, so you can't rely on these correspondences, I suppose, in, in or or that there's no there's nothing that that tethers these kind of. Um, configurations of meaning. Well, well, in fact, the constellation becomes a symbol of this. Right? Mm. Like, like the, the, the constellation itself is a, um, becomes um, to the modern a, a merely arbitrary imposition of like you see this resemblance in the stars yes. and you say that this is like Orion or something like yes, that. But exactly. it isn't, it isn't, um, it doesn't have a sort of cosmic guarantor. It's not no. written into the world, although one might have this evanescent vision that it, vision that it does. Yeah, and I think um, um, uh, what makes this particular reading um, that Milner uh, uh, necessitates in some sense is so, so powerful is that, to my mind, he's actually one of the few people that does this with an eye to the mathematical dimension in, yeah. in, in Malamé. I mean, if you look at the history of Malamé criticism, um, people are, very rightly, I think, in some respects, um, always um, comparing Malamé to the stuff that is going on in mathematics at that particular moment. Uh -huh, uh -huh. So, um, for example, um, Derrida in the double session um, will create a homology between literary undecidability in Malamé's Mimique and Godelian undecidability. Yes. Um, and Kristeva, uh, uh, um, as, as, as Rob may have alluded to before, um, in, in an early piece called Towards a Semiology of Paragrams, creates another homology between the axioms of set theory, which is, of course, set theory has its origins in the late 19th century, and, uh, and uh, Malamé's linguistic subversion. For Just say, I reluctantly passed over. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> sure, sure, yeah. Okay. Big um, um, <laughs> um, But uh, I, I think it's worth mentioning that actually um, the first literary reviews of Ancuda Day raised the question of why Malamé um, invoked uh, the number, chance, yes. this, uh, the dice throw, these kind of quasi-mathematical images to, um, I in what is the sort of apogee of his uh, poetic legacy. And I think what makes Milner so forceful is he does give a really kind of, yeah, thorough and, and uh, um, I, I think absolutely correct account of, of why that, mm. that's the case. And which, uh, an account that doesn't um, simply throw back the poetry onto a kind of ridiculous imitation of mathematics. Exactly. It's, exactly. it's actually what's going on is Malamé reinscribing an older mathematics, a Pythagorean mathematics, in a modern universe. Mm -hmm. exactly. and, and having those as a kind of dis disjunctive conjunction, if you will. That's right, that's right. And you only need to look at like um, Malamé's, uh, the two categories that Malamé is always invoking are the, the infinite and the nothing. And yes. they're two. Um, absolutely modern categories like they're modern but how do you rethink these modern categories on the basis of something that is in exception to post-Galilean science where you have to pass through an, an ancient conception of mathematics mm -hmm. uh, yeah and, and yet and yet the ancient also passes through the modern in the sense that for the ancients both nothingness and infinity were, were for, for different reasons unthinkable exactly. right? like, yes. like either exactly. um, 
Uh, yeah, that's that's really interesting because I mean, if there's one figure um, who who also seems to have, I, I mean, okay, sorry, let, let, let me let me step back a moment. I mean, it seems to me that your criticism of of Derrida and the uh, invocation of of Gödel and um, Chris Daver of the axioms of set theory, and um, when talking about Malame, is that is that uh, to use a Malame term, it's like that they merely unleash the demon of analogy. That it's a it's it's purely an analogy between mathematics yeah. and poetics, and it doesn't have any sort of str- um, um, more kind of robust status than that. Um, by contrast, however, um, another you know recent um, work that that uh, addresses uh, the question of Malame and, and number is is Quentin uh, Mercy's the, the number and the siren. Um, now, I, I'm both interested in in anything either of you have to say about that work. I know I know it is discussed in the conclusion to to Robert's thesis, but also given. What you just said about Milner's take on number, I'm certain that you would have asked Milner what he thought of um, Messi's The Number of the Sirens. So, yeah. Sure. Well, maybe we should give a, a little bit of an overview of what this book is all about. Please. Um, and if I could, I'd like to start back with Rancière. Okay, because, sure. Um, Who is your other interviewee, by the way? As that's we right. Discuss and that yeah. yeah. There's one way of reading The Number of the Siren and showing the to be some degree of a refutation of the conclusion that Rancière reaches with respect to Malamé, and which we kind of emerged, um, which we kind of arrived at at the end of the last session. So Rancière has a particular reading of Ancou de Day, which sees it as, um, it's a little bit reductive to say this, and Rancière would reject this, as something of a failure, in the sense that it doesn't live up to the ideal of the exigencies that it sets for itself. Okay. So why would this be? Well, it is pursuing um, the goal of inscribing the idea on a piece of paper. Right? Yeah. It's got to, as we, as we saw, like Rancière is talking about Mallarmé as somebody who sees poetry as a privileged practice, and it has to prove its privilege. The concept of proof is all the way throughout Mallarmé, and obviously in mathematics as well. Indeed, There's an indeed. infinite point of conjunction there. Yes, yes. Um, okay, so Rancière will say... Malamé is led to this point at which he has to show the um, way that literature is the only uh, uh, literary or sorry artistic practice that is able to inscribe the idea. Everything else is a simulacrum. Okay. On the one hand, Malamé has that vision of things. That's his telos. On the other hand, he has a radical anti-representative, obviously, telos to his work. Okay. So we can't have a simple platonic schema of participation, something like that. To obviously give the cartoon version of Plato. Yes, indeed. Um, but uh, what Malamé is led to do is to, in a sense, fall back on a representative regime, which is to say he's going to use the resources of literature, the imminent resources of literature, which include graphic resources, to um, prove that it is the inscription of the idea. And one thing that he does in order to do that is precisely do something quite banally or pathetically mimetic, <laughs> which is to inscribe on the page like motifs of constellations or ships listing from starboard to larboard and what's it. <laughs> so uh, Rancière believes that there's a certain contradiction that emerges within that coup de day, an irresolvable contradiction for Malamé, right? which sort of gives the lie to, or not gives the lie to, but rather shows the... Um, incapacity that he finds himself faced with of synthesizing the contradictory axioms of the aesthetic regime of art. Yes. Now, what uh, Mayasu demonstrates <laughs> is that this is an arbitrary conclusion on the part of uh, 
violence, yeah? And then in fact, Malame, and perhaps the coup d'etat itself, is the only work of art to have escaped from or to have transcended the contradictions of the aesthetic regime of art. Okay, so we'll Nothing see. less. No less than that. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's, that's extraordinary. And obviously, I, I hope you also asked Ron Sierra about Mayotte, but continue, continue the story. We yeah. said he hadn't read the book. Ah! <laughs> ah! Oh, that's horrifying. Anyway, <laughs> so the difficulty uh, Malame is dealing with in aesthetic modernity, in which these difficulties with respect to the coup de day flow from, is that there is no uh, necessary link between content and form anymore. Okay? So we don't have any intelligible... Uh, or rule-governed or ideal uh, relation between um, content and form, such that any idea, capital I, that Malame would purport or presume to be able to institute in his work is struck with this radical doubt, okay, or radical contingency. It can never reach the ideal that it is um, um, attempting to reach. What Mayasu does is to show that that contingency, Malame is able to find a way of turning it into the condition of the success of the poem. Mm-hmm. Now, for Roncia, Roncia understands Malamé to be in a religious paradigm. Yes. We are reinscribing religious motifs yes. into the framework of an atheistic modernity. One of those is the, uh, the Eucharist. Indeed. All right. Now, Malamé may have a pretension to produce a secular Eucharist in his poetry. But Roncier will always say he can never fully live up to that idea. It will always be undercut by the um, ineliminable contingency that will emerge between content and form. Now, what I love about what Mess is about to do is that is that what Roncier is saying here would seem to be be commonsensical, <laughs> like 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 perhaps that of course Malame can't accomplish a secular Eucharist. However, however, <laughs> not, not to rehearse all of the arguments of the complex book, sure, which sure, sure. everybody indeed. should indeed go out and read. You most definitely should, but. Mayasu is able to demonstrate how that contingency between content and form, between the way that uh, the, what the uh, poem sets out to do and what it actually does, its reception by its readers, that is the condition of possibility for it precisely to become an atheistic, secular uh, Eucharist. Yes. So Mayasu's book can be read as a refutation of Rancière yes. and also as this brilliant... Uh, demonstration of a work of art that has precisely, perhaps the only work of art, perhaps the only practice that has actually achieved the post-romantic dream of producing some kind of secular religion, of solving all of the political ills of modernity. I mean, this is this is so extraordinary in the context of your thesis, Robert, because because every figure, even I mean, maybe the bad year of being an event. Comes comes closest to saying that there's a that Malame succeeds at something, as in as in becoming the poet of the event, but at the time. But every figure that we looked at during our long discussion at some point says Malame is is so great. You know, he's a, he's a great um, progenitor, blah, 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 like revered ancestor. But of course, his project fails, and it mm, seems to be right. at, at the very at the very least like like to show this this kind of wonderful. Sort of chutzpah on Mayasu's mm. part to, to say he's ahead of his time, but not of ours. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah. Whereas Mayasu says, no, 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 he he completely succeeded. Like he actually yes. achieved what he set out to achieve. Yes, yeah, he could have written QED at the end of it. <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah. Yes. Yeah. The only thing I would add to that is that there is something um, quite extraordinary about the conclusion that Mayasu uh, comes to, and which I think. Um, 
reflects on the entire history of Malame's reception, and in fact on the entire history of political appropriations of any literary work in the modern age. Yeah. Okay, so at the end of his book, Maesu's book, he establishes this extraordinary uh, equivalence between the project that Malame sets out to achieve, which is instituting a secular Eucharist, and on the other hand, uh, figures like Feuerbach, figures like uh, Victor Hugo, yes. and uh, figures like Marx. Yes. Okay who are all within that utopian uh, 19th century paradigm. Mm, definitely. Now, he also says that uh, Malmé is the only one out of that set to succeed. Extraordinary. Which is an, an extraordinary, extraordinary claim. Like, yeah. Yeah, it's, thus, uh, uh, modernity has triumphed and we did not know it. That's how the conclusion to that book... I mean, that's so, that's so beautiful and so counterintuitive and so, and mm, so sort yes. of gloriously mad, really. Exactly. Like it's, yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah, indeed. So, but I think that this, in a sense really shows the abyss or the infinite distance between the goals that literature sets itself or the political destiny that is given to it and the material means that it has to carry it out. I think that the case of Malame in its oscillation between treating him as a comrade, as an enemy, as a hero and as a villain, shows this. So it well may be the case that, formally speaking, the coup de day is a secular Eucharist. Mm -hmm. But the problem is, is that you have abstracted, or that Malame has abstracted, perhaps for necessary reasons given the limited domain in which he intervenes, a literary domain, he's abstracted from the concrete totality of what religion actually is, you know, the ensemble of practices that it involves. He's abstracted one moment from that, namely the Eucharist. Is in a sense the one that he can treat, is the one that he's able to institute in his poetry, and has supposed that that would precisely solve all of the other problems that religion was previously solving. Yes. Okay. So it may very well be the case that the coup de day is a secular Eucharist. But the very fact that its conditions of success are precisely this radical contingency with respect to its reception, mm. okay, its reception as a secular Eucharist, precisely leads it in a totally opposite direction to the successful overcoming of the, let's say, the political or spiritual alienation of modernity. Yes. It's as if the more the literary takes up the political demands of, the, of modernity, or of emancipation, the more it leads it in a direction which precisely leads it to failing to succeed in doing what it does. Yes. Okay. And we get to this uh, quite um, mad uh, conclusion whereby we can say something like Marx, or Marxism, or communism has failed, but Malame has succeeded. But in a sense, if that's the case, then they're actually not pursuing the same programs. And we have to retrace our steps a little bit to see where it was that literature took itself, took upon itself the mad uh, idea that it was actually solving these problems. Mm. I mean, this is, yeah, no, this is uh, really interesting. I'd like to bring uh, Kristen back in on, on this point as, as well, because while I, 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 I thought you, what you just said um, was was wonderfully clear and and true. Uh, I I wonder though whether whether part of uh, please uh, correct me if if I'm wrong about this, but part of Messi's um, point seems to me to to um, evoke evoking Milner again um, actually sort of raised the question of. I suppose the relationship between art and a different condition, not between mm. art and politics, but between art and science, and that this this is something complicating everything that's going on here. In the sense that when you, when you speak of abstraction, like it, it seems to me like clearly something that abstracts from the the social 
hole, right, or whatever. Um, um, that, that obstruction is to some extent an index of, of failure, arguably, with regards to politics. It's a compl complicated issue for another time, right? But, but as in insofar as if, it, if, if the work doesn't in any way touch the lives and sort of laboring bodies of ordinary human beings, like then it hasn't achieved anything, like if it remains a thesis in a book or whatever, kind of, kind of clearly. And yeah, I mean, I think, and I think this may play a role in maybe Mercy's reception, Badiou's, and Milner's for all their for all their differences. From um, that, for all of these thinkers, though, if if you're coming from the perspective of, of of looking at Galilean science as a condition within Galilean science, curiously, abstraction is a kind of victory condition mm -hmm. rather than a condition of failure. It's like the condition of possibility to actually succeed which which it cannot be in politics despite and and i know we agree about this in a in a different context we've talked about the virtues of abstraction in in political thought right but but there's something yeah is there something i suppose yeah christian that you have to say about about what robert just said in relation to abstraction and political failure and this scientific condition the sort mm. of role of mathematics in, in there and this yeah um um i guess uh um it's a complicated question. <laughs> uh, yeah, sorry, I, I totally uh, no, no, no. acknowledge that. Yes, no, uh, um, um, I have to admit that for me, uh, um, one of the the starting points for the, the the question of the the crossing of conditions, if you will, between uh, 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 Malame and let's say science, which really we we mean mathematics. Indeed. indeed. Um, is, As uh, <laughs> that's right. It never means biology. No, <laughs> no. Um, is is well is Badiou right? Yeah, yeah. Um, no, and uh, and Badiou is uh, um, uh, Leotard says at one point that Badiou's reading of um, the coup d'état is one of the most beautiful readings of the poem ever made, and and I do agree with him. But um, Badiou uh, sometimes breaks his own rules. Um, oh yes, uh, Robert's uh, point of yeah. I think, uh, um, and in one particular instance. Um, Badiou says, uh, uh, Malame is Cantor's unconscious contemporary. Now, for readers familiar with Badiou, that might seem strange in some senses because uh, they treat entirely different uh, topics, mathematics indeed, indeed. And, and, and poetry. Yeah. Mathematics thinks ontology and poetry, uh, or Malame is the poet thinker of the event. But in this, when uh, Badiou is saying this, he, he actually um, is providing a reading of the coup de day that sees the infinite as in as an integer, I'm very like reluctant to use that term because that's uh, to my mind a particularly bad translation. Um, but but Malame and Cantor have a uh, 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 um, unconscious contemporaries of one another, and I think that this particular narrative gets repeated throughout um, Malame criticism. I mean, we invoked uh, Derrida before, who I think certainly does this. Uh, Chris David does this, but the question of Maisu is. For me, a little bit more complicated than, mm -hmm. than simply a homology between the two, and it was um, actually uh, what I, um, in a roundabout way, uh, tried to investigate in my honest thesis on on Maisu. Yeah. Because uh, what what I what I was interested in at the time was the disjunction between the Malame book and what people were saying about Maisu's project at that particular point in time. Based on reading after finishing. Exactly, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And uh, um, so someone like Frank Ruder in, in, a, in an incredibly technical um, essay says um, something like, um, Badiou speaks of the age of poets, but Maisu inaugurates the age of scientists mm -hmm. because mm -hmm. he, he is he's too reliant on science, um, mathematics, and uh, 
say the archifossil at the beginning of um, after finitude yeah. to establish his claims whereas someone like Adrian Johnson will say no he's not scientific enough like he wants to be scientific but he's actually not scientific because enough because he ignores neuroscience and the, <laughs> and the usual yeah, suspects yeah, yeah, yeah. and uh, um, someone like Marcus Gabriel will say you know the problem with uh, Maisu is that he's under the troubling influence of Alain Badiou and he feels con compelled to speak about mathematics so, for me, what I was struck with with uh, Mayasu was um, when people talked about uh, the necessity of contingency, which is, of course, what the what Mayasu calls the structural for basis of all his philosophical claims. They always did so with reference to what he was saying about mathematics or science. Yes. Um, and now Mayasu does um, in uh, after finitude invoke. Uh, set theory. Yes. And what he's doing in, in uh, uh, when he invokes it is he's finding a way to think the detotalization of the possible. Yes. Um, so because uh, set theory uh, uh, shows you that there is always a bigger infinite succeeding the one that it um, that comes before it, uh, you can no longer have a totalizable base of which you could then predict all the results that come under that uh, totalization totalizable uh, uh, base. So it explains why probability can't be applied to the universe if it's a, if it's if, if it is a Cantorian infinite. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and uh, uh, so Mayasu uses or invokes mathematics to substantiate his argument about the necessity of contingency. Yes. Yes. Now, what I was struck with when uh, reading uh, um, Mayasu's book on Malame is what he does is he finds us. He, he, he wants, to wants to provide an answer to what he thinks are two external exigencies that Malame is um, responding to. So one, as Rob very rightly invoked, is the, um, the, the politics, yeah. and uh, yeah. particularly um, how do you deal with um, uh, the constant um, splitting and fraying of the community that religion once helped you bond? Yes. How do you deal with that? But the other is, um, uh, and of course they're linked in, in very complicated ways, but the other is um, the specific antagonism at the end of the, the 20th century between free verse and um, traditional meter. Yes. And so in Uncouth Today, um, Mayasu's wager, as he calls it, is to suggest that the invocation of the unique number that cannot be another is precisely giving form to that which we see as formless. A unique form, though, one that that both um, yes. um, um, satisfies free verse while also uh, satisfying meter, some conception of meter. And to do that, he literally counts the number of words in the poem, yes. uh, at which he arrives um, uh, at seven o seven. Yes. Um, but uh, uh, of course, there's there's always a, a but whenever you speak about um, Malame. <laughs> um, but uh, that number is not stable. Um, because uh, there are certain ambiguities in the count, there are different versions of Uncouth Day. You can arrive at 7.06, you can arrive at 7.05, you can arrive at 7.08. But for my suit, this doesn't matter because precisely what the number does is it dialectically synthesizes, this is a dialectic without telos though, yes. it's other. Yes. So the number has an internal undecidability about it. Now what this argument leads my suit, um to suggest is that a throw of the dice will never abolish chance, both abolishes chance and doesn't. 
So you have multiple different numbers producing contingent realities, but you also have the necessity of the undecidable number. So for my, what I was particularly interested in is the way that um, critics of uh, after finitude, critics, maybe not philosophers, but critics of after finitude were um, uh, uh, sort of arguing against Maisu's uh, reliance on mathematics or science or something like that to confirm the necessity of contingency. What I was struck with was that actually you got this incredibly strong forceful model of the necessity of contingency from literature and precisely in uh, abstract yes. literature. Yes. Yeah. No, 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 that's so true. I'd actually, I'd never thought of that, I, even though, even though like a lot of true things it, it retroactively seems incredibly obvious to me but but I never I never thought that I mean that's right like that would that would absolutely I mean if that book had been out at the time you know the first responses mm -hmm. to after finity would come out it would or rather should have radically um, transformed them right so Malame actually um, also derives this um, this thesis about the necessity of contingency from a literary paradigm and not for and not from a, a mathematical yeah. paradigm right so there's there's this excessive focus on on mathematics, whereas yeah, I, I mean, what what Malame, sorry, what Messi does with the with the um, unique number in, in in his reading of Akudide is to um, is 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 to is just that that um, the the poet's position, Malame's position, is always um, undecided and undecidable between free verse, like between the kind of chaos of free verse on yes. the one hand and. The relativism is, is it just yeah, contingency, the relativism right? of not, just not with just well. equivocation and therefore the sense that, that there is no poetry, right? Mm. Like it actually it relates to the problem that Robert raised around the, around the aesthetic regime, right? Like like the the the, the tr an, a, a clear decision for free verse is potentially a decision for that for that ambiguity about about uh, of the status of poetry. I mean, what is art, right? Like, is it just equivalent to anything, which is one of the problems that Rancière says art in the aesthetic regime must face. Like, how, how can it distinguish itself qua art when it has no sort of direct, or uh, it has no distinct objects anymore? And then on the other, on the other side, there is, um, uh, you know, he is not choosing a, a classicism. He is not forcing, you know, insisting in a sort of reactionary way that, that French poetry must stick with the form of the Alexandrian and, and so on. Okay, but so, so yeah, I mean, we have this, we have Mayasu uh, asserting his thesis about the necessity um, of contingency from two different conditions. I, I'm tempted to ask you at, at, at this point, what did uh, Jean-Claude Monet say in, in response to, to um, uh, this thesis? A couple of things. Yeah. <laughs> both, both, both of them negative. <laughs> so the first one has to go goes back to our discussion of his political uh, views before. So um, if we understand uh, uh, Malame to be in this sort of uh, uh, equation of equivalence with respect to Marx, with respect to Hugo, with respect to Feuerbach, uh, with respect to all of the 19th century utopians, then for Milner, this uh, vision of things participates in the so-called political vision of the world that he wants to undercut. Yes. So uh, one of his responses to Mayasu is that even if Mayasu succeeds in showing what Malame does qua inscribing a secular Eucharist within the poem and therefore succeeding in terms of the um, sublation of, uh, 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 sorry, of religious ideas within a secular modernity, therefore restoring the symbolic bond, that to Milner is irrelevant. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it means nothing for us today. 
following the events of the Holocaust in particular. Okay? We are inhabiting a completely different political universe for which something like the coup today is just irrelevant. Okay? So there's no way it can even um, be of any use. It shouldn't even be an object of desire to us. If it is an object of desire, then we've misunderstood the fundamental political stakes of modernity. Yeah. This turnaround, as Christian talked about, um, the uh, moments at which people are silenced um, by a murder and that politics has to think its way back to this uh, um, abstract speech situation in which precisely you cannot pass beyond the limit of um, uh, listening to the other person and not killing them. Yes, right. yes. That's, the, that's what politics Because when you do, you pass beyond politics for yes. four million now. Okay, I'm, I... Yeah, gentlemen, it's been, it's been such a fascinating uh, conversation, but this, is a, this has been a really, really epic podcast. I, I, I've been talking to uh, Robert of how I will definitely have uh, Robert back on the show. We have, we have much more to discuss. I'd also love to have, have you, Christian, as a, as a guest with your own sort of extended session. I suppose to, to conclude, um, even, even though we haven't had a chance to, um, and to talk about uh, in, in depth about uh, the interview with Manet or Rancière, um, I'd, I'd, like to, um, I'd like to conclude with asking you a, a question which you'll both hate me for because, because it's something where I'm kind of asking for a pithy formula for something that, that will take sort of years of your life. But, but given everything that we've seen today, all of these, these contradictory readings of Malamé, so from Sartre and the, the Talcalian seeing sort of opposite visions of Malamé as a, as a figure of, for the revolution, I mean... Uh, and we still see with Mayasu and Melner, we still still see, and, and Rossier, we still see these 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 polar readings of Malamé. Just if you had to say, you know, in a, in a couple of sentences, what it is you thought that that makes Malamé such a such a locus for these kind of controversies for everything, for politics, for aesthetics, for metaphysics. What what is it, and, and, and maybe what is it in particular for you? Why why do you think why are we still talking about Malamé? Why have we been talking about Malamé for four hours, and why would we why could we have easily continued for ten hours? Yeah. Look, I'll just, I'll just reply with something Malamé said. He referred to literature, and I'll say it in French, as l'art où tout se rattache. The art to which everything sort of glues itself or attaches mm-hmm. itself. That's what he said. L'art où tout se, tout, tout se rattache. L'art littéraire. He doesn't... Uh, it, it, it seems like he could not have been more prescient. Yeah. <laughs> um, oh, look, I have no fucking idea. <laughs> Brian, I, I, I would say... Um, um, uh, yeah, I would say that um, not even philosophy escapes tradition, mm-hmm. and 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 some and the tradition of of um, the philosopher pronouncing upon Malamé is something that has um, played itself out again and again. And uh, um, what's what is absolutely remarkable um, um, to me is that. Um, there is still more to be said about Malamé. Yes, Robert affirmed this, affirmed this as well at the beginning of the course. Sorry, so Robert. I'm going to come back in. I can't have yes. it. I no, can't no, no, because I have a lot of... Ah, the nature of intellectual collaboration. <laughs> Please, Robert. Barthesen, Roland Barthesen. Yes. Oh, here we go. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> oh, that, yeah, yeah, okay, no. Do you remember what it is? Yeah, I do, but okay, you, you, you say it. Yeah. No, I don't want to. You say it. <laughs> <laughs> I might screw it up. No, I will definitely screw it up. You, you do it, Rob. I'm not editing this bit. <laughs> this, this bit has to stay as the authentic violence of intellectual collaboration. Please okay. continue. Possibly paraphrasing, possibly quoting perfectly Roland Barthes. Yes. He says something like, uh, we all speak about Malamé, and it is good that we speak about Malamé. 
Um, on that note, thank you very much, uh, Christian Gelder and Robert Boncardo. Um, you've been listening uh, to Philosophy Can Ruin Your Life. Uh, my name is Brian Cook. Thank you for joining us. Uh, well, uh, well, you'll hear from us again in the not too distant future. Thank you thank very you much. Brian. Thank you, Brian. Yeah.